the curse of the devil. Exorcism, a sacrifice, blessing, or bestiality. The curse of the devil. Satan in control of the body and the mind. My love will destroy the creation. I swear that you'll find it. Welcome to episode 47 of the Nashi Cast. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are your guides through the films of Paul Nashi. As we get off into the weeds here where <laughs> yes, even Paul boy. Nashi, even Paul Nashi <laughs> only particip- shows up. <laughs> even his participation is questionable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, for this particular film this time around, folks, he may have filmed all of his sequences in a single day. Yeah. Yeah. Unlike, you know, The Hanging Woman where he was a supporting character but was a pivotal supporting character, he is definitely not in this one. So. <laughs> no, 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 no. He is... Uh, he is uh, damn near an afterthought. Yeah, yeah. This was a day's, you're right, this was a day's paycheck for uh, Mr. Nashi in this case. Uh, it had nothing to do with the script or anything like that, so... Uh, he only interacts with, I think, two other yeah, two other actors in the entire film. Yeah, yeah. So, so... Uh, uh, oh, well, yeah. let's tell you what film we're covering. Yes, yes, right. I'm sorry. This <laughs> The film this week, or I'm sorry, this month, is uh, The Killer is Among the Thirteen. It's a, uh, I would call it a kind of Spanish... Agatha Christie, sprinkled with giallo kind yeah. of film. Yeah, well, that was the that was I think one of the key questions. I know uh, our man in the field, Dan, kind of put that question to us. I think he's wanting us to somehow kind of tackle and ring our ways. Is he, he said, is it a whodunit or is it a giallo? So that's kind of one of the questions we'll be tackling here as we go through this. Yeah, 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 and, it, and it's a fine question. It's one of those. Uh, this, this is one of those marginal films where Nashi is on screen, but it is. Uh, Ooh, it's marginal. Yeah, yeah. It's marginal. I guess probably more of interest. Now, there certainly are uh, several people who are part of the Nashiverse, as we've come to call it. Yeah. And uh, the director is certainly of interest to us. Uh, certainly. Because we've seen his work before. Uh, Javier Aguirre, or Aguirre, mm-hmm. or Aguirre, or Aguirre, Javier Aguirre. Mm-hmm. Ha-ha. But I got that right that time, yeah. <laughs> well, he is the man who directed... Uh, claws or yeah. <laughs> he is the man who directed Nashi in The Hunchback in the Morgue. One of our favorites, yeah. Yeah, one of, the best of, uh, one of the best of his horror films, period. As well as Count Dracula's Great Love, which is a good deal more contentious, but still mm-hmm. a beautiful film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, it's not as if uh, he was unaware or had not worked with this director before. He definitely had, although we'll get to in a little while what Nashi had to say about this movie, and uh, unkind words were definitely past his lips. Mm. So, The Killer is Among the Thirteen. Interesting. Um, Any alternate titles for this? Did yeah, yeah, yeah. There definitely are some alternate. I think, let me see here. Let me make sure of this. Um, oh, my Lord, no, there isn't. I thought there were, but I there Somebody aren't. just felt that title was apparently just so awesome that uh, nobody <laughs> <laughs> nobody could think of anything anything better. Well, uh, before yeah. we de- before we go into uh, before we go into uh, depth and start talking about the film, a uh, few things first. One, I did want to say that uh, on the modern spa- on the modern Spanish film uh, circuit, something that I think would be of interest to uh, listeners to the podcast is a, a, a new film by uh, Spanish director Mateo Gil. 
or his last name is G I L. Mm-hmm. Someone schooled me on exactly how to pronounce his name. I've always pronounced it Gil or Jill. Probably Jill. I think we've seen it as Jill, and it seemed like there was a character named that in one of uh, the films we did at one time. Who and they uh-huh. seemed like that's the way they pronounced it was Jill or something like that. Well, uh, he was a collaborator with the fellow who made uh, the amazing film uh, Thesis back in '96. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, together they made the film Nobody Knows Anybody in mm-hmm. 1999. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he was a collaborator with him when they made uh, the others as well. Uh, but Matteo Gill directed something uh, Nobody Knows Anybody. And uh, he he hasn't directed many films uh, in between that and the film I'm about to talk about, but in 2011, he put out a movie called Blackthorn, which is an English-language film stars Sam Shepard, uh, Eduardo Noriega, who uh, was in The Devil's Backbone, and uh, Thesis as well, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, uh, yeah. Stephen Rhea, and uh, uh, Nikolai Kostor. Oh, yeah, from Game of Thrones. From yeah. Game of Thrones. Yeah. Now, what it is, is Sam Shepard plays uh, Butch Cassidy. Oh, wow. In uh, Bolivia in uh, 1920, I believe it's 1928 at this point, or 1924. Uh, essentially, he's been, uh, he, he, he didn't die in that shootout in Bolivia. And as the film goes on, we kind of find out the, uh, the, the wherefore and how of, how of how he's still alive and where uh, Sundance is and uh, what he's been doing in the meantime. And uh, essentially, this is the story of him having uh, gotten together enough money and decide is decided to, for various reasons, the film presents to uh, go back home to the United States at this point uh, because people have thought he's dead for roughly twenty years anyway. Yeah. And uh, it is an exceptional film. Well, I was about to say, it sounds fascinating. I was like, just just you describing it, I was like, man, I'd, I'd love to see this. It is a really good movie. Like I say, Matteo Gill or Matteo uh, Gill. Uh, he's the uh, he hasn't directed he's only directed uh, eight things and most of those are shorts and TV movies, mm-hmm. but he did make nobody knows anybody in in ninety nine. He made one of the films to keep you awake that little uh, Spanish mm-hmm. TV series. Yeah, yeah. His his was called Spectre and I haven't seen it so that's mm-hmm. that's on me. Mm-hmm. But um, as a writer, he was involved with Thesis and the fantastic Open Your Eyes, which was turned into Vanilla, Vanilla Sky Star, over right. here. Yeah. Um, the the sea inside, and he also wrote uh, Agora, which was uh, the uh, the director of that who the guy who made Thesis, uh, Alejandro Amenabar. Uh, that was his most recent film, which came out in two thousand nine. He wrote that as well, or co-wrote it along with Amenabar. But so he's a fellow traveler in Spanish uh, genre cinema for the past, I guess, roughly mm-hmm. almost twenty years. And uh, Blackthorn is well worth your time. It's uh, if you like westerns. Uh, thoughtful, kind of, uh, I would say, kind of melancholy westerns. This is a really good one. This one reminded me in a lot of ways of something like uh, The Ballad of Cable Hogue. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or something along those lines. Cool. It's a a very strong movie, very well done, and uh, one that I can recommend. Cool. The other thing I wanted to say is, hey, I wanted to check back in and say I did watch the other Kilma film. Yeah, you did find the... the... Yep, yep, yep. Kilma, Queen of the Amazons. And I'd say I liked it about as much as I liked the other Kilma film. Uh, honestly, it has absolutely nothing to do. Yeah. The, the films have nothing you to do said with it each really other. Is, yeah, there, There's no connection it. whatsoever. Yeah. It's the same actress mm. playing a character named Kilma. In this, it's kind of... I describe it as uh, pirates versus Amazons on an island. Which, that sounds fun. Well, which is, you know, it's five different kinds of, hey, I'd watch that. Sure, so. yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. But it's it's kind of worth your time, and, uh, it, well, if you like, if you like to, if you like the other Kilma movie, it's, mm-hmm. it's actually got a few more points of interest, kind of mm-hmm. different kinds of interest, 
uh, a couple of character actors that we've seen in other Spanish films from the period. So mm-hmm. definitely something worth checking out if you have an interest in it mm-hmm. at all. And same director though, right? I mean, it was same was director, the same, yes. same director as yeah. They they, they, they made but... they seem they seem to have made these films back to back. Yeah. So. Huh. Okay. Cool. So I thought I'd better check in and let everybody know. Hey, yeah. We told you there were two mm-hmm. Kilma films, mm-hmm. and I, I saw the other one now, and uh, it's, not, it's not too bad. Okay. I liked it about as much as the other one. Cool. Let's see. What, what Have you seen anything of interest to the to the listeners of the podcast over, over um, the past few weeks? Well, I'm just now seeing something that probably all the rest of the listeners have seen years ago. Is uh, I actually did, I actually can now say that I have made it through the entire, I have seen now all of the original run of Friday the 13th slash Jason films. <laughs> yeah, including Jay up to up to and including Freddy versus Jason. You know, not the new. Not, you know, I've not watched the new remake and probably never will. You know, now but if I, well, I'll, I'll probably get around to it at some point. But I have no real. In, you know, I don't feel a like vast impetus. You know, yeah. to uh, to. But no, but I actually uh, for years I had literally only gone through the first five of the Friday the Thirteenth series. Um, well, well, five has stopped a lot of people cold. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but uh, well, and well, let me take that back. I had watched the first five. And then a few years ago, I saw Jason X, which I loved. I, <laughs> I love it. It's an absolute God, blast. I love Jason. So I had seen, I had seen ten, Jason ten, Jason X, you know. But uh, so over the last uh, few years, I've been, I went kind of through, rewatched the whole series, and this time went through it all. And uh, um, have to say, the I, I believe now the worst in the entire series to be Jason Takes Manhattan. I thought oh, that easily. was absolutely horrible. Oh, it's a terrible film. A yeah. uh, couple of nice surprises. Well, I had been told that actually uh, that uh, the. Um, uh, that the sixth part was actually pretty good, and and, and it's that was and, and that was it was a sixth or seventh one. I'm trying to say I'm trying to remember now which is the one that actually was was pretty good film. I'm trying to remember the well, one of them has the telekinetic chick in it. Right, right. <clears throat> that would I think be the seventh one. Yes, yes. I think it was the sixth one that that uh, I had been told was was it was because uh, it was one of those that actually was pretty decent. You know, it was was pretty it's good. Fun. It was was okay. Um, I had I had not realized what how much fun, insane fun, uh, Jason Goes to Hell is. I actually had a blast watching that movie. And fans do nothing. I serious know, hardcore fans of that series just, do nothing but bitch about I Jason know. Goes to and Hell. And it's just, I mean, it is. It was thoroughly, thoroughly entertaining. I, I know. I, I really, I, I am. Um, because the only thing I knew about it was the crazy, you know, the Jason turned the snake, the Jason snake thing. And so <laughs> yeah. I had this impression that it was this film that's your standard Jason film and then goes off the rails at this certain point. I didn't realize the entire film is off the rails, but in just a totally fun, crazy way. I mean, I would yeah. love to see this film with a big audience because I was just sitting there just having a great time watching it. That, to me, was the most pleasant surprise of the whole series was how much fun that film was. I, I wasn't well, expecting that. Well, here's the, here's the downside of that is we saw it in the theater uh, one of those private midnight showings we got mm-hmm. back in those days. Yeah. Where oh, we yeah. were able to cart beer into the movie theater. And oh, watch gosh, it. right. The, the, the yeah, problem was is that we were all sitting there. It was me and Jack and John and a bunch yeah. of other folks, a bunch of, bunch of people we knew at the time, mm-hmm. who sat there to watch it. And we got really pissed off because what I'm hoping what you saw was the uncut version. Oh, of definitely, what, but, definitely. But what we saw in the theater was this thing where a lot of the violence was trimmed oh, out of it and it was yeah. obviously hacked oh, out of it. Yeah. It was one of those things where you're sitting there and what, what you came to enjoy. Yeah. Is the silly, over the top, unnecessary yeah. violence of it, and the the kind of you know the, mm. the the joy of seeing what the filmmakers can get away with, and then mm. honestly, the film is just kind of gutted. And it's one of those things where I often think that um, the two thing I often wonder if a lot of the the hardcore fans one of the reasons they hate it is because that's probably the only way they ever the saw it. The first time. Yeah, because I definitely saw the uncut, and it's it's yeah, I mean it's full of 
extreme gore in there yeah, and yeah, some yeah. just craziness. But then, of course, one of the things that they the hardcore fans are never going to forgive it for yeah. is, uh, regardless of that amazing opening sequence, they're never going to forgive it for it being kind of a body swap. Yeah, that Jason's kind of, kind of possessing people through yeah, most of yeah, it. Yeah, you know, that it's not your usual summer camp setting or something that, you know. Precisely. And, uh, and I can understand that, but at the same yeah. time, my God, man, loosen up. It's fun. Oh, uh, yeah. And and and, the re- and and on second viewing of Jason X, once again, it just is, it's it's truly a, a very smart satire, just really a, 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 a thoroughly entertaining movie, very funny and, and, and really, really, really intelligent, you know, satire. It's clever, to man. Just, I yeah. really enjoyed the hell out of yeah. it. There's a, like I say, the, the Jason Goes to Hell and Jason X are the two that the hardcore fans, the ones who just bitch and moan oh, yeah. and complain yeah. about all yeah. the time. And I'm just yeah. standing in there staring at them going, you guys need to take a step back. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, no kidding. But, but that's really yeah. So so that's that was something I'd always wanted to do was kind of to, to watch all the rest that I hadn't seen that series. So so did that. Yeah, did that. Did that here recently. Oh, one other thing that I think would be int- uh, of interest to people who uh, listen to the podcast, not Spanish in any way, shape, or form. Although, um, well, I'll just lay it out. Everybody, everybody who's mm-hmm. a film nut is aware of the film *The Wages of Fear*, the mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. the Clouseau film from 1953. Yeah, absolute classic. Oh, one yeah. of the one of the best uh, suspense adventure films ever mm-hmm. made. Just mm-hmm. incredible. And uh, everybody, I'm everybody who knows that movie is probably also well aware that William, William Friedkin did a remake of it in uh, 1978 or mm-hmm. nine, 77, mm-hmm. called *Sorcerer*. Which is also really, really good. And mm-hmm. the, the debate has always been, you know, wow, which one do you prefer? Which one's better? I always think that uh, they're pretty close, but mm-hmm. I'd give the edge to Wages of Fear, although I think Sorcerer is astonishing. Yeah, they're both very good. You're right. I maybe slightly give the edge to Wages of Fear, but yeah, both films are very, very good. Well, the other, the uh, the really interesting thing is I found uh, found out because of the podcast Paleo Cinema, Terry Frost's excellent uh, movie podcast, that there was a, uh, <clears throat> let's just call it Hollywood ripoff remake in 1958 called Violent Road. Whoa, really? And it's they didn't attribute or anything like that, but all you have to do is watch Violent Road, and you're like, yeah, all they did was rewrite The Wages of Fear. <laughs> trim, it down, trim it down to a sharp 80 minutes, mm-hmm. reset it, and there you go. Violent Road I saw a few weeks ago. Uh, after he uh, after he alerted me to it, he did a podcast where he covered Wages of Fear and Violent Road to just talk about the fact that you know this is an obvious remake of it, uh, an unacknowledged remake. And a Violent Road is pretty damn good. It's not a patch on Wages of Fear. It's got it's got yeah. you know it's not even trying to be that good of a film. It's just mm-hmm. trying to be really good for what it is. Uh, stars Brian Keith, a very young, in shape, muscular he man. Really, <laughs> Brian <laughs> Keith. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, this is even before you know Family Affair, the TV series he became oh, yeah. famous for. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh, he's quite good in it. This is uh, 1958 or 59. I'm trying to remember, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, a solid little B picture. Uh, exactly the kind of uh, straightforward, no nonsense. Um, you know, almost well. It, in a lot of ways, a lot of the dialogue is really, really mean spirited noir type dialogue. At times, yeah. there's some uh, conversation between. Uh, female character, basically one of two female characters in the entire film, and Brian Keith, that uh, almost strides the line between hard boiled and overcooked, but it's <laughs> really fun to listen to. And uh, but Violent Road, uh, it's uh, I think it's out there available on uh, a burn on demand DVD, and it's worth your time if you're curious. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I say, it's not 
as good as The Wages of Fear. It's not even as yeah. good as Sorcerer, in my opinion, but it is what we're seeing just out mm. of curiosity's sake if you are a film nut. And uh, you're listening to a podcast about Palm Yeah, Ashy, I so say, you probably are film nuts. At, yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, or just a podcast nut or just some kind of nut. But, uh, <laughs> just somebody going, ah, a human voice in my ear. <laughs> I'm it's lonely. I'm lonely. I want to be talked to me. <laughs> yes, <really>. uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, Sorcerer had to kind of take the route of uh, it's. It sort of uh, had to take the route that John Carpenter's The Fog did, you know, because Sorcerer came out and flopped because it wasn't. It was his first film after The Exorcist, and so it got punished for not being The Exorcist. Whereas, you know, of course, John Carpenter The Fog got punished for not being Halloween. But over the years now, it has much has garnered much more respect and uh, you know and recognition for being a very good film. It's a. I look. I look forward to uh, getting my hands on that uh, Blu-ray of Sorcerer that's been issued now because mm-hmm. yeah, I've always that. admired that film. And uh, on, uh, I saw it the first time I ever saw it was um, was a screening on Cinemax where they did Wages of Fear and Sorcerer back to back. It was hosted by Martin Scorsese, as I remember. This was a oh, wow. long cool. time ago. That's very cool. That would yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> and I just videotaped the whole thing. And uh, yeah, that was it. Was quite an introduction to those two films, I have to say. But. Enough talk of yes, films saying, that have nothing yes, to do with. Yes, I was about to say you can tell we're brimming over with enthusiasm to dive into this film. There's so uh, oh, <laughs> so no, we didn't I mean, get to it. I know we're, we're, getting, we're, we're getting we'll get to it. it. It's just that I, there were things yeah. I wanted to talk about before we got to that. It's, no, no, it's always good to remind people that we are human beings in the sense that you know we do watch <laughs> we do have a lives outside of the Paul Nashi uh, universe. Uh, you know, not not, not, not too much. Like, uh, not too much. I mean, our lives are pretty small and petty. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so remember, if you want to get a hold sort of like, this, sort of like Paul Nashi's <laughs> role in this film so. <laughs> you are you are so painfully correct sir okay all right if you want to get hold of us you can drop uh, drop us a line at nashycast at gmail.com oh, let's see if i can deal with all the phlegm this evening yeah or you can visit us over on the facebook page the nashycast facebook page and drop us a line there let us know what you think let us know if you uh <clears throat> i don't know have you seen blackthorn how's that <laughs> maybe we should yeah. maybe maybe we should eventually yeah, delve into a thesis and nobody knows anybody and open your eyes and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. some of the more recent Spanish stuff and you know, I would be yeah, yeah, yeah. interesting interesting way to go because yeah we yeah. may we may one day have to do that I don't I don't know after the, the, the level of fun we had with Nightmare City over on the bloody pit <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah yeah people are apparently very much enjoying our take on Nightmare uh, City of, yeah yeah, yeah. Rod, uh, Rod, a lot of enthusiastic yeah. a lot of enthusiastic thumbs up for the uh, the Nightmare City podcast so. Folks, we will take a quick break here. We will come back and we will start discussing this month's film. There are a lot of podcasts out there that do science fiction, horror, and fantasy movies. But how many of them are done by somebody who's been watching this shit for half a century? Hi, my name's Terry Frost, and I do the Martian Driving Podcast, a podcast where I look at silent films all the way through to movies from the second decade of the 21st century. I look at fantasy, horror, and science fiction, and talk about them, sometimes with the guests, sometimes by myself, but always with an eye to the stuff that maybe has slipped off your radar, if it was ever on your radar. So go to marsdrivein.blogspot.com or type Martian Drive-In Podcast into iTunes and enjoy a bit of decent genre talk. And keep watching the skies. Okay. The Killer is one of 13. Uh, 1976, from the best we can tell, is the release date. 
Mm-hmm. Don't know of an English language version of this film. It appears to have been a Spanish language only. I don't think it got mm-hmm. brought over to the States or even to Britain. Yeah, and we might as well say right now, we this is a, a very nice print, but it's clothed. It is definitely the clothed version that we are watching. Yeah, I would yeah. I, I think there's got to be I think, uh, missing I think footage and an, agree, an unclothed version of this. But the print's very nice, though. Oh, the print looks fine. Uh, don't have any, comp- don't have any uh, complaints, but it's very clear there are several, hell, probably four at mm. least sequences in the film where there was probably going to be some nudity depending mm. on the actress mm. but honestly i think i i think that they just trimmed around it or yeah. you know shot it with uh, bra and panties as opposed mm. to nudity uh doesn't distract doesn't change anything in the film as best we can tell right of course we've been we've been schooled on that before yeah that's right yeah. Wit- <laughs> witness the werewolf and the yeti aka the night of the howling beast for information on how a sequence being left out of the movie that involved nudity can completely change your thesis <laughs> holy shit anyway well considering that this is a there's a lot of information in this film that you know so it's like hopefully we're not missing something right. you know because uh, because uh, there's certainly a lot of uh, of things that uh... well now here's the thing um, I don't know how you feel about this mm-hmm. and what's funny is I'm gonna I'm gonna bring this up and this this movie is very much a uh, a kind of Tin Little Indian style mm-hmm. Agatha Christie mm-hmm. type of murder mystery oh it begins with the cla- it's beginning is classic of this you know yes. old dark house uh, even though there's not really an old dark house or even a thunderstorm in the film but. Any kind of whodunit. I mean, the classic where the cars are all arriving by invitation. I mean, and that's fun because we've seen that. We know we kind of instantly know the territory we're in when we see the long road and we see the cars all kind of arriving one by one up to the lonely house. You know, we sort of know. Right this under, is the under, classic the, setup. under the credits, we're we're yeah. establishing this isolated house out in the country, mm-hmm. uh, while uh, while we're introduced to a few couples and a couple of other people who are driving to this location, mm-hmm. and it's through these couples' dialogue with each other that we learn just how isolated this place. I'm sorry, just how isolated this place is. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the couple's remarks that, you know, it's been three hours since we passed the last town, mm-hmm. which means it's way out in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Now, let's state right up front that although this film is in Spanish, don't get whiplash because this film takes place in the English countryside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very clearly, it takes place in the mm-hmm. English countryside. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, there's a lot of talk about uh, traveling between London and Paris. This is the English countryside. Don't be thrown by the fact that everybody speaks Speaking. Spanish. <laughs> It's just as eccentric Brits, they do that sometimes. It's yeah. you know, they're crazy. What can you expect? I mean, mm-hmm. it's that upper crust people. They, they, yeah. they, they, occasionally, they'll speak in Swahili for no damn good reason whatsoever. <laughs> so what we have is uh, we we establish our location. We establish uh, some of the some of the people heading out to this place, and just how isolated it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the cars. The isolation the, is important too because the isolation automatically means you know no help is nearby. So, correct. You know, correct. Correct. And that that becomes important to, yeah, later it does, on. It does. Uh, so uh, one of the one of the one of the couples is passed by a man in a in a little sports car, and the passing man is the first man to arrive at the house where he is greeted by his host, who is a, a lady named Lisa Mandel, played by mm. the lovely returning customer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have... Re- re- returning returning player on the Nash cast, Patty Shepard. Yes, yes. We always love Patty Shepard. She was uh, most iconic as the incredible vampires in uh, Werewolf Shadow. Definitely, definitely. She was also in, uh, as I remember, Assignment Terror. I think she was in that. Yes, she was. Yes, she was. Uh, Luckily for all of us, she was also, at the very end of her career, before she retired, she was in Slugs. Slugs. Yes. (laughs) 
Juan Simone Piquer. Maybe that's why she retired. Yeah. <laughs> well, she did that in Edge of the One Axe, more edge back of the to back, axe, yeah. which is another, uh, which is another Spanish. It's a Spanish slasher that I have a lot of love for. And one mm. day I think we may have to cover on this podcast because no fucking body else will cover it. And that I think it's good to me. hey, it's also got Jack Taylor. Oh, awesome! Edge of the Axe, but Patty Shepard is definitely. Lisa Mandel, and we're always glad to see her pop up in the podcast because mm, she is easy on the eyes. Yes. Uh, she and she is so pretty in this film. She is. She's a beauty. She's such a pretty lady in this film. And something else that I like about Patty Shepard is that she's damned good. Yeah, she is. No, I she and she like has to carry. Her perform. I mean, she has to. You know. Oh, she, she has to carry a she, lot. She has of to speak dialogue. an encyclopedia of exposition in this film, and so she handles it all very well. And she's very. She's always. Uh-huh. You know, uh, she has to carry a lot of long scenes of dialogue, and she does well. Um, so this guy is obviously now this guy we we figure out very quickly they waste no time in establishing that he is the he is a rogue of sorts and now he is a yeah he's a bit of a flirtatious the, the charmer, gigolo. The charmer, yeah yeah he, he's the uh, the quote unquote good looking charming guy mm-hmm. who uh, you know flirts with just about every woman he runs mm-hmm. into and and very quickly we learn that he also doesn't have any problem flirting with married women right at a, at a later point in the film actually referring to married women as forbidden fruit yeah <laughs> so, right now we sort of probably we we. we we're probably right to assume that there's been something in, that he and, and Lisa have had in the past, but she right. is obviously a very independent and self-possessed woman, and and it's you know you never get the you know she 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 accepts him the way he is. She basically says she's immune to his you know charms at this point, you know, uh, but in a friendly way. You can tell that she's very happy oh, to she, see yeah, him. She so does very much. Yeah. She very much just accepts him how he is. Now the first couple to arrive after uh, he does, and his name is Harry Stevens. Harry Stevens, yeah. Or Harry Stephen. Right. Yeah, I always I think, think there should be an S on the end me of it. Me too, right? yeah. 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 But at any rate, Harry, uh, the first couple to arrive after uh, after he arrives is uh, the Fonz, F-O-N, which is, I know. <laughs> yeah, which just is let's a, clarify that this is not, there's no not Z Henry in Winkler. Now. Yeah, this yes, is yes, yes, yes. Well, this, this, is a, this is a kind of mitch, mismatched uh, couple mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. uh, well, uh, while both probably are, I would say both are actually middle-aged, the the lady is actually very uh, very well put together, mm-hmm. and the uh, the husband is someone who has gone a little to se- gone mm-hmm. a little to seed, mm-hmm. and he they uh, they're best described as kind of uh, nouveau riche. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're driving a Mercedes. It's very obvious that he's wealthy, but it's also very obvious that he's one of those guys who worked his way up from the gutter, mm-hmm. and he does has a bit really... of a chip on his shoulder because of it, I believe. Too. A, li- a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, yeah. but he's also he also seems fairly confident in himself in a certain yeah, way because he knows he has money and he's not too concerned about it. Mm-hmm. He runs a cannery, I think they say, right? And yeah, fish cannery. Yeah, fish cannery. Right, right, right. Okay. Uh, doesn't doesn't just run it; he owns it, and that becomes something that comes yes. up later on. Right. The second, uh, well, the the uh, at this point we're shown uh, some of the other people who have already arrived at the house in the back of the house near the pool, and this is where we get our first glimpse of Nashi, although he has no dialogue, and the camera pans across him and mm. one of the maids pretty quickly. Yeah, they're getting ready to serve everybody their drinks. Right, but back there we uh, we have a bunch of characters who we don't get introduced to until a few minutes later. Yeah. By the way, I'd like to point out that the, this guy, Jorge Fons, the husband of this couple that's right. arrived, um, you know, the wife seems a little embarrassed by what he's, he's apparently a little bit on the crude side, a little bit, you know, he yeah. just kind of speaks naturally to everybody, you know, he's, he's kind of a, you know, so with that kind of a... Well, like kind you of a said, bloke. Kind of the fact that he realized that he's not born into, that kind of emphasized the fact he's not born into aristocracy or born into money, that he's made his way up. But it, it, some of the, you know, it's one of the examples of the way that this, the translations of the dialogue, the subtitles, as we read them, wondering if it's a mistranslation, but he addresses the chauffeur as Toby, even though we come to know that the chauffeur's name is Henry. I'm wondering if Toby is uh, supposed to be some sort of a slang name 
because it's right after this that his wife makes oh. the first. Uh, I see what you're saying. In his, other words, is it some kind first, of uh, like is it some sort of like kind of uh, generalized in a, in a for servants or you're something? right? Some kind of generalized, yeah, almost almost insulting term. For yeah, because he servant? basically tells him to he tells him to oh, get the bags or something. He says like Toby, get the bags. And it wasn't on the second time around watching, I realized, okay, he just called him Toby. The guy's name is not Toby, so is this some kind of... Because it, it, it's right after this that his wife kind of makes an apology for him being, you know... Because he, he refers to the house as, as, as digs or something, you know. He and, calls and, it a pad. A pad, and, and Patty Shepard's like, do you mean my house, you know? And the white woman says, "Don't do you have to speak in these kind of terms? So I think it's kind of... Made, I'm just wondering if, if that was either just a totally wrong subtitle, if they totally screwed up that, or is it is it that Toby is actually some sort of slang in that country or at that time some sort of demeaning name or some sort of name you know it's just it may, something I just broke down as a curiosity I'm well be. curious about that now what that I'm you know, curious but, I'm curious about that now myself but anyway so well we uh we are introduced back at the pool side mm-hmm. to uh Francis and his mother who is uh Aunt Bertha uh, Aunt Bertha is... She's a uh, piece of work. <laughs> she's an interesting character, but then again, so is Francis. So is Francis, yes, that's true. Francis is uh, the uh, young cousin of Patty Shepard's character. Mm-hmm. And uh, his mother, Aunt Bertha, who, uh, wow, she is <laughs> she is a character. At any yeah. rate, the, she's the, they are the, uh, the only living relatives of Lisa. That's the Patty Shepard character. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, she makes it very clear to her son that we need to make sure that everybody here knows that. Yeah, yeah. So she catches him eyeing one of the serving girls, and uh, yeah, he's she's got like, his instead eye of making her uncomfortable, won't you come over here and? Now, from stand dialogue between uh, four of the guests who are standing there talking, we learned that uh, Lisa, that is Patty Shepard's character, her husband crashed in a plane. He died two years before this date, mm-hmm. and uh, they established that he was a, a very renowned lawyer, but also known as a sportsman, mm-hmm. a sportsman as well. He died and, a plane crash over the English Channel. Over the English Channel, flying from London to Paris, mm-hmm. and he was flying his own plane, so it was, uh, it, was a, it was a single engine, you know, personal plane. This is, this, is, this is something we will get to in a while. The Fonz are in their room, arguing, and saying that out loud does make me feel, does <laughs> no, make me feel every weird. Time you... <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, it does make me feel weird. But anyway, they are There's arguing. no shark jumping with a motorcycle in this film. No, no, no. You, yeah. uh, well, it was on water skis that he jumped the shark. That's right. Oh, That's you're right. right. You're right. Now, let's let, let's get our geeky weirdness yeah. and sad sad <laughs> recollections all together now and put them in a box and shove them in a corner. Okay, well, they the, the couple are, the, the Fonz are arguing about, uh, well, she's kind of taken him to task for his quote-unquote vulgar manners. She's kind of concerned. She It's very obvious she's concerned with class. And uh, she doesn't. She wants her husband to to work harder, to not be boorish. Rem- you know, remember who you you know remember mm-hmm. who you are, and try to mm-hmm. not talk like some kind of common person. And uh, at this point, actually, he kind of go along with her a little bit because he is a little. Mm-hmm. He he does kind of stick out a bit yeah. amongst these people in that the way he speaks and the way he acts mm-hmm. is a little out of place, mm-hmm. shall we say? We see Harry Stephen, our flirtatious feller. Uh, flirting shamelessly directly with the maid that uh, turns up in his room. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, and by the way, in that previous scene, Jorge also, this is something that will become a running thing. Almost every conversation they have is sort of this theme of she's embarrassed by his provincialism and he uh, harps on her for, to a point, I mean, he always makes references to her flirt, you know, to, to he's, he's her flirting oh, yeah. with, you know, uh, with, with, yeah. Younger so it's man. obviously he's probably a little threatened by the fact that she is held up much better in, in aging than he has, you know, so. True, true, I agree. 
So anyway, yes, you're right. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, Harry uh, instantly He's... notices the the little maid, uh, whose name is Elena. Yes, that's right, Elena the maid. <laughs> Elena the maid. No, uh, no yeah. relation. That's right. Uh, no, uh, he he's talking to her, and he he uh, he learns that uh, they don't really have any days off. The servants don't really have any days off when they're out at this house because it's so isolated. And he mm-hmm. remarks on how sad that is. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> well, the maid in, the maid goes out into the hallway and runs into Nashi's character. And this is our first line. This is our first uh, sequence with dialogue between uh, Nashi's mm-hmm. character, mm-hmm. Ernez. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe it. I believe it's, it well, it's, it's sometimes spelled without the H, Ernez with starting with E, and then other times they put the H in front of it, but uh, mm. like Hernez. Oh, and I, that's right, Ernez. Uh, I'm going to go with Ernez. Let's go with Ernez. That looks right. Uh, well, he, you know, he turns out he's he's of course the the chauffeur who also pitches in doing other things when he's not driving cars, obviously. Right. Right. And he is clearly jealous. He and. Uh, the maid Elena have something. You're right. Going I'm on. sorry. I missed. But he is the chauffeur. Henry is, I guess, the butler. Henry's the butler. Okay, you're right. I, I, mean, I think I called Henry the chauffeur earlier, and I messed that up. And I, so he's that, actually. You're right. That's right. okay. I was going to castigate you later. <laughs> you were just going to let our listeners do it. I know. <laughs> Throw me to the wolves. Tashi to the wolves. Mm. Well, we are the third best Nashi podcast in the world. So <laughs> yeah, we are. Our fans so. are going to kick in and, yeah. and take you to task for these. Kind I know. Of things. So, yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, this is when the, the next sequence is when Lisa introduces uh, Harry to well to basically everybody else out at poolside, kind of mm. to the gang. We have mm. Mister and Mrs. Is it Gib or Gill? Gib or Gill. This is where we get into a problem with our translation, yes, our yes, our fan do. subs, which are wonderful. Don't get me wrong, but for half the film, they're referred to as the Gills, G I L L S. And the latter half of the film, they're referred to as the Gibbs, Gibbs, G-I-B-B-S. And sometimes I think, I think one of the confusions is, I think his na- sometimes he's referred to like his first name is Gil. Well, no, no, his first name is Guillermo. Guillermo, that's right. And so I wondered if Gil was like a nickname, like a short for that or something, you know, and maybe that's, but you're right, he is Guillermo and, and uh, yeah. and, uh, right, and, uh. She is uh, as his wife. Uh, is that Laura? Is his? Um, we'll get, uh, yes, Laura. Yes, Laura is his so. wife. But uh, you're right. So the, the Gibbs or the Gills. What do What do you want to go with? And now it's it's. I'm good either way. I'm going to go with the Gills because that's what I wrote gills. down the most. All right, let's go with the. All right, let's go with the Gills then. Well, uh, also we have a uh, single lady, Ms. Uh, Pariola or Parioli. Yeah, Parioli. I think I've got Paroli. Yeah, Miss Miss um, Paroli, single redheaded woman, played by Doris Cole. Mm-hmm. Who was an actress that I honestly, when I saw her, I thought we may have seen her in something before, but I can't figure out what I it may can. have been. I don't know. And apparently, she only made a couple of movies after this. this yeah, yeah, this was uh, this was one of her last films. Uh, she was after this. She was in a movie called The Burned City, and then she did an episode of a TV series, and that was all she wrote. But uh, I honestly thought uh, Doris Cole was someone I had seen somewhere before. Yeah, yeah, it's like we talked about. There's there's some of these actresses here that I just I feel like you know I reckon they looked familiar to me, but. Uh, um, basically, uh, uh, Mrs. Gill, uh, Laura Gill, that was one of the actresses that I just was sure I'd seen somewhere before, but I, I think when I looked over her credits, uh, it didn't really, uh, nothing really, uh, uh, rang a bell. It's played by, yeah, Carmen Mora. Oh, well, I know her now, from Now, she was on some on. more recent, yeah, like Women on the Edge of a Nervous Women Breakdown. Women on the Edge of a Nervous Breakdown, and she was also in the, that film that I've talked about on here before, Com- uh, The Commonwealth. Oh, right, From uh, right. the year 2000. Yeah. Um. But yeah, as for something that we've covered on this on this uh, on our podcast here, I I can't place her in anything mm-hmm. right off the top mm-hmm. of my head. And taking a quick look, I can't really. I can't either. I don't see anything that's that's uh yeah. 
But uh, she, once again, she's, she's got the look. And I don't know if it's just because there's so many actors and actresses in this that we've mm-hmm. seen in so many other things where I start to kind of get the idea that mm-hmm. oh, all of them, I've seen them all somewhere. Yeah, yeah. But uh, nevertheless, we, uh, oh, one, I'm sorry, we're also introduced to uh, Mrs. Uh, ha- uh, Havert or Havert. Uh, I think I'm not sure how we're supposed to. I think Howitt to... is is oh Howitt is that Howitt right? yeah um, or Hovitt. I'm sorry. I think maybe Hovitt is what we got like H O V T T. But anyway, her name's Martha and it's uh, Martha Hovitt. Uh, there they have her listed as Hoven, right there. Right, and, and this and this actress we yeah, know we damn good it. and well. Mm-hmm. This is a uh, Dianese Zurikowski, mm-hmm. who we've seen in well, let's see, uh, yeah, yes. Mark of the Mark of the Werewolf, Hanging Woman, yeah, Mark Hanging Woman. Woman just recently. Uh, we kind of call her the first lady of uh, of, uh, of 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 the loves of of Waldemar Daninsky because she was the very first screen love of Waldemar Daninsky. It's true, she was. Uh, she she also uh, plays a part in uh, Vampire's Night Orgy, which is a film that we will end up covering yeah, we'll do on that here eventually. But she's always a pleasant thing to view. She's this mm-hmm. uh, she's this very attractive blonde woman, and she uh, plays her role quite well. And then there's also Mr. and Mrs. Martin, who are uh, uh, who are a couple that uh, have a tangential relationship to uh, things that are going on here, and more things come out as we go. Mm-hmm. Now we also see in the pool there's a guy sort of hanging off to himself, throwing rocks and uh, in, in, throwing stuff in, in the so pool. So throwing rocks into the pool for no good reason whatsoever. Yeah, but he's hanging. We find he's hanging out by himself because he's a a, a lonely tortured artist. And we don't get a good and look at him until. By, oh yes, yeah, he's played by lonely tortured Jack Taylor. <laughs> Jack Taylor. Uh, he is he is introduced to uh, Harry as Mr. Arlen. He's mm-hmm. an artist. Always a pleasure to see Jack Taylor oh, yeah. pop up, and uh, he plays this character to the hilt, and it's quite mm-hmm. a lot of fun here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now we see Aunt Bertha talking to her boy Francis, basically telling him what he should be doing. Mm-hmm. It <laughs> becomes clear very yeah. very very much up front that one she uh, controls her son's life, and mm-hmm. she has the desire to have her son. Make I guess you'd just say flat out romance and wed and or bed and wed Lisa to yeah. kind of keep the family money in mm-hmm. her hands one way or the other. Yeah, because she's basically at this point she's telling him to keep Harry away from Lisa. Like she's afraid right. that that now that Harry's back on the scene that that uh, he and Lisa will strike up again, and she doesn't want anyone to 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 get be in line for a certain inheritance that we'll find out about here shortly. Correct and. Um, she she also points out that that, that, all, that the only guests there that have any class, mm-hmm. this is when uh, Bertha and Francis are off in their suite of rooms by themselves, changing for dinner. Yeah, there's all um, kinds of things going on there. There. <laughs> oh God, damn! No, no. <laughs> Not and the fact that boy's carrying around enough porno to start his own shop. Yeah, yeah. You could basically just call her Aunt Aunt Bates, Aunt Mrs. Bates, and uh, <laughs> if you wanted to, and I'll call him Norman. That's so, a yeah. good point. Well, she she remarks that the only people there with class are the Gills, and they're broke because he's got he's apparently got a gambling problem, and the, the wife is a spendthrift. Yeah, and uh, and the Gill and uh, I don't know if we said already, but yeah, Mr. Gill is played by our old friend Eduardo oh, Calvo. Eduardo Calvo, who, yeah. uh, yes, we've who seen we many many things. We we've seen Eduardo, Eduardo Calvo in so many films at this oh point gosh, that it's, it's almost like... the Edu- there are times when we should be doing a subset of podcasts called the Eduardo Calvo Show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh Lord, what what have. Uh, He's of course in. Uh, he was in The Devil's Possessed. He was in uh, Mummy's Revenge, Revenge of the Mummy. Excuse me. Yeah, House of Psychotic Women, aka Blue Eyes, The Broken Doll. He was in Curse the Devil. Mm-hmm. He was in Cutthroats Nine, which we have of course covered here as well mm-hmm. as a Beyond as a Beyond Nashy episode. 
And it's just what I say. He was in actually uh, the the one we did, uh, 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 Red Light, uh, Disco Rojo. He was oh, he was in, in Disco Rojo. That's true. I forgot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah. We've 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 seen Eduardo many times. And, oh, uh, and don't forget Eddie. him as Emil in uh, Inquisition as well. Oh, that's right. He was in Inquisition. That was a very yeah. good, that was a yeah. very good role for him. That was that was, and uh, looks like he uh, is is in uh, Cross of the Devil. Uh, which oh yeah, we'll which will be co- which will be covering soon. very soon. Uh, Mister uh, Mister Calvo passed away in nineteen ninety two. Sad to say. Yeah, but uh, he's very good in this. By the way, I, I like. Oh yeah, that. yeah. He's, he's, he's one of the, I think one of the better performances in this. I'm, film. I'm impressed by his uh, his facial hair. Yeah, oh yeah, he's got the great well trimmed great mutton chops and all. Uh, well, one of our one of our listeners or one of our buddies, uh, I think it's the guys that do the might be the guys that do the Hello the Doom show. Where they uh, were saying that uh, talked about him looking like a very a, a very older Lemmy, you know, from Motorhead, <laughs> like how Lemmy will look in his well, six, Lim- seven, I don't know. Lemmy kind of looks like Lemmy, sort of already. Yeah, yeah <laughs> if he, yeah. if Lemmy cut his hair, he would be Eduardo Calvo. I so. think Lemmy was born at the age of thirty two. <laughs> yeah, he's just been getting older as we go. So. Well, uh, Mr. Gill is definitely uh, jealous of, of his wife and is uh, not quite happy with the way she was kind of mildly flirting with, uh, well, especially Harry, but uh, basically he complains that she flirts with everybody. Now, uh, Aunt Bertha also marks uh, marks out uh, Martha uh, Hovitt, or Hovitt. How did we decide to pronounce her name? Think. The character played by... Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Remember what's calling Martha? Yeah. Our, bl- our blonde. Uh, the blonde. Our blonde. The blonde. The, the, the single blonde. Well, well he marked... single blonde. Because there's a single redhead and a single blonde. Single blonde. You're right. Yeah. So, uh, Aunt Bertha marks uh, Martha out as uh, an obvious gold digger. He thinks she's there hunting for a rich husband. Uh, but there's something about her face that's familiar. And she's convinced that if she thinks about it long enough, she'll mm-hmm. figure out where she's seen her before. And at this point, the aunt really just lays it out for Francis, her son, which is that you're here to get Lisa away from that skid row Don Juan, yeah. Harry Stephen. <laughs> and I love the fact that you know he's like a se- he's like a second cousin or a f- or first cousin, and she's like, it yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> well, then we have a brief scene where Nashi meets with the maid and uh, in the in the wine cellar and sets up a late night rendezvous with her in the pool house. Mm-hmm. She doesn't seem all that thrilled with the idea, but she's going to kind of yeah. go along with it it appears. We'll find out that there's so much illicit activity that happens at the pool house. I start to worry about how it might smell in there, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, somebody needs to uncork the chlorine. That's for yeah. sure. <laughs> don't go don't go in the water. Yeah, that's that, because what's happening in the yeah. pool house is bad enough. <laughs> yeah. All right, and now we have what I would I would refer to as the true kickoff sequence. Yeah, and by the way, this is at the point where if you want to get out your flow charts, your uh, if you You're want to get out a- your uh, your PowerPoint presentation, you want to get out your your uh, yeah dry erase board because I Lord knows I had to make I had to basically make one whole sheet uh, that was you oh, know sort of like That's a fan that was sort of a yeah. tree to keep up with who you know who I was doing what and uh, uh, so yes, uh, now, but anyway yes this, we should we should preface. Before yeah. we dive into this dinner discussion and the, and the mm-hmm. way that everything gets laid out here, this is where the plot actually begins. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly the kind of thing that I read a murder mystery to enjoy, which is you gather all these people, you mm-hmm. don't know what their connections are. Some mm-hmm. of them know each other, but not everybody. Mm-hmm. And then you're told, here's how everyone relates to everyone. Mm-hmm. And, here's why they might be the killer. Right. And here's where we get into the the engine. Here's where the engine mm-hmm. actually gets switched on and we find out what the hell's going on. Right. Now, there being 13 characters involved, that means there's a shit ton of information that has to be yeah. drop kicked down your, yeah. down your throat. Uh, well, yes. Um, yes. There, uh, I had to time it. Uh, 
I basically... You timed it out, really? Second time on viewing, I was just... Because the first time through, I was just like, oh my God, is this scene ever going to end? You know, it's... Uh, uh, yeah, it's, this is the... Yeah, because this is the big scene where they're sitting around the dinner table, and it's 15 minutes long. And here's the thing. Now, I... Which in itself is not always a bad thing. I mean, Quentin Tarantino is someone who can carry take a fifteen minute conversation and make it fascinating, riveting from start to finish. Uh-huh. And you realize that yes, this is information that has to be gotten out there. But uh, I did find fifteen minutes of it <laughs> starting. It was starting to. <laughs> well, I, I can I can see where you're coming from, but I'm going to have to say it didn't bother me. And it's not that anyone's badly. And like I said, this is another one of those scenes where again, Patty Shepard has to carry so much dialogue, and she does a great job of uh, you know of. of of yeah. getting it all out there, and you know, so uh, like I, I'm gonna I'm gonna own up. I really I really enjoyed this scene because, okay. it, especially uh, even just the first time through, but the second time through, it was really fun watching this stuff be laid out and realize mm. it's mm. like watching dominoes fall. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, here's how it goes. Lisa okay. kind of yes. explains. She lays everything out. Her husband was uh, his name was Carlos Martin, and he was murdered. On this very day, two years before, uh, they remarked that there are 13 guests, which is generally considered a very unlucky thing to do, have 13 guests mm-hmm. at the table. Yeah. And one of them even remarks that, hey, today is the 13th of the month. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed it is. And there's a specific reason for having them all here on that date. As the second anniversary of her husband's death is here, she wants to explain to them that, in her opinion, mm-hmm. his death was not an accident right that his death was a murder and that she is convinced that the person who is responsible for his death is one of the people at this table Mm -hmm. and she starts to lay it out the plane crashed in the english channel flying between london and paris something that he did on a regular basis never Mm -hmm. had any problems before he was a perfectly Mm -hmm. good pilot no problems Mm -hmm. one of these people some of them are connected to him. Some of them were friends. Some of them were uh, were, were clients of his or, or uh, had some connection to him through his work as a lawyer. Ms. Uh, Perioli says, hey, wait a minute. I don't have any attachment mm-hmm. to anybody here or to mm-hmm. your husband. Mm-hmm. And she gets kind of verbally slapped really quickly with, with mm-hmm. Petty Shepard going something along the lines of, really, you're unattached? Yeah. You really want to run with that? Yeah, yeah, right. Let's see. Yeah. <laughs> well, the morning of her husband's death, she says... The first strange thing is that he took 10,000 pounds out of the bank Mm -hmm. and there was a visitor to his apartment Mm -hmm. an hour before he took off on his plane. Right. Now, one, he has no reason to have taken 10,000 pounds out in London to take Paris with him because he's got access to banks in Paris. There should be no problem. He didn't need to carry cash. And supposedly that money went down with him when he crashed, Mm -hmm. but... Still seems kind of odd. Who was the visitor? Inside the apartment where this meeting took place, they found the empty bank envelope that the money came in. So why would he take the money out of the envelope to take it to, with him onto the plane? That doesn't and, make any sense. And one of the women like, mentioned something about, well, if it was a man in his apartment, and they basically clarify that, well, yeah. the way the person was dressed, it could have actually been a woman in disguise, too. Right. So that doesn't mean... So it doesn't yeah, rule any women? identified it as a man, but that's because it was dressed as a man. So, Right. Aunt Bertha pipes in with, uh, listen, well, the, 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 it should, you should be able to take myself and Francis 
off of your possibilities of your list of suspects pretty easily because francis is the is the heir to your husband's money but only if you die and you're perfectly healthy nobody you know nobody's worried about your health and we have money and we're not worried about money in the first place so there's no point but there's this sly look from Lisa yeah. to Aunt Bertha going, yeah. really, are you you're sure you're okay with money? Yeah. Are you you're sure yeah. about that? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, she starts laying a lot of information out there, namely that her husband, Carlos, cheated on her. And uh, cheated on her pretty mm-hmm. serially, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but that that's not really a big deal to her, except that that is one possibility for someone who might want him dead, a jealous right. husband or even a scorned lover. Mm-hmm. So at this point, I thought it was neat that Mr. Martin points out that, hey, well, if you were aware that your husband was cheating on you, that kind of shines a light on you, little wifey, yeah, (laughs) as someone who might want your husband dead, especially since you would be the one to inherit. Yep. True, true, true. Yes. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. But here's something else that you people don't know. We had uh, the police and I had the, uh, there were, there was a, there were two glasses in the apartment. Mm-hmm. Two people had been drinking coffee, obviously the visitor and my husband. And in one of them, there was a trace of barbiturates. Yes. Wasn't enough to be a fatal dose, but it was enough so that roughly an hour later, he would have gotten sleepy, probably gone to sleep at the controls of the plane and crashed. Hence, murder. Mm-hmm. So, in her opinion, in his wife's opinion, he was murdered. Mm-hmm. And it either has something to do with his... Life as a lawyer or with his love life, one or the other. Mm-hmm. She decides to start laying out information right. about all of the people about at the table. Him. Right, right. And she starts with our artist, Mr. Arlen, yes. played by Jack Taylor. Mm-hmm. She talks about how she sought him out. She really thinks he's a phenomenal artist, and she thinks that in you know, some time in years to come, he will actually be thought of very much higher than he is now. And she displays one of his pieces of art. It's an it's a, mm-hmm. uh, an expressionistic piece of, an expressionistic piece of art, mm-hmm. and explains how much she really likes it and really really is impressed by it. And then she displays another piece of artwork, which yeah. is a beautiful oil uh, oil painting that is very obviously a uh, let's just say copy of a more famous painting. Yeah. Right. It says, this is also his work. Well, Mr. Arlen immediately <laughs> denies this. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and then she lays out that, yes, it is your work, and here's all the information you want to know about it, and mm-hmm. here's why mm-hmm. you are the first person I'm talking about. Yeah. Because you're, you're, you were the one who forged this painting. As a matter of fact, it's part of four paintings that you forged. And one of, the, one of the things that Carlos was going to Paris to do was to file suit on behalf of one of his clients because he'd bought one of these forged paintings. Right. Yeah. Now, Mr. Arlen didn't sell him the painting. Right. Mr. Arlen did the painting for a dealer mm-hmm. years before. <clears throat> right. Who then sold it to this client of her husband's. But it is kind of suspicious yes. that now, of course, that lawsuit didn't get, didn't mm-hmm. get, uh, mm-hmm. didn't get, uh, uh didn't get brought. And she also lays out that information from the police that the uh, buyer, the man who bought those paintings from Mr. Arlen in the past, yes, has died, died under mysterious circumstances. Under mysterious well. circumstances. As a matter of fact, he drowned in the River Sin. And he uh, left behind some notes that definitely seem to point to someone with the initials AA <laughs> as the person who was paid to paint this 
and three other forgeries. So, there's your motive, sir. Yeah, yeah. Then she moves on to Mr. Fawn. I like having to be singular so it doesn't sound like I'm saying. Yeah, Fawn. <laughs> <Yeah. clears throat> she lays out that he bought up the ownership of uh, the uh, cannery he now owns uh, in uh, really clever ways, uh, kind of secretly using uh, secondary buyers and people behind the scenes until he controlled the board, and then he uh, created a fake bankruptcy which allowed him to buy up the rest of the stock in the cannery, and uh, then he kind of uh, owned it outright and took care of any, anybody who was in his way. This ruined a number of people, including a client of her husband's, and as a matter of fact, there was a suit about to move forward at the time of her husband's death involved, involved in this because there seemed to be some suspicious kind of accounting going on inside the cannery having to do yep, probably right. with that fake bankruptcy <clears throat> that allowed him to roll up his ownership of the place. Yep. Well, Mr. Fawn is a little pissed off about this information right. being spewed out there, of course. Now, um... At this point, she points out to everyone at the table, and all of you, by the way, were either in London mm. or near enough <clears throat> that you could have gotten there pretty easily. So don't any of you sit there and say, oh, right. you know, I was nowhere near this place. I was somewhere else completely. Well, two of them try. Uh, Miss Perioli claims not to know, uh, not to, to, to not only not know, have ever known her husband, to have actually, uh, to actually not even know why she's here, why she would be considered a suspect. And she, and Lisa points out, actually, your fiance was a client of my husband. And uh, my husband did some work for him and found out about your past, found out that she was a divorcee instead of a widow. And uh, that was not something that was looking good for you as a way to uh, mm -hmm. get married to a wealthy man. Mm -hmm. She also points out that Arlen, our artist, uh, oh, uh, wait, wait a minute, it says, uh, it's also pointed out that Carlos was sleeping with uh, the same woman as... Uh, as Harry? Or as Harry. Was, yeah. It, it, who was a wealthy Harris, and uh, if that had gotten out, that could have ruined the... Uh, the that could have ruined... Uh, the wealthy Harris's uh, chances for uh, a, a solid marriage that would have kept the money in the family. Yeah, she basically at this point is where she kind of points to, you know, like with Harry basically saying, you you know, basically saying that he's been involved with two of the women yeah. that are at that table there. Even though he's trying to pretend that he hasn't. Right. And that is when Arlen, I believe, asked Martha, uh, the our attractive oh, yeah. blonde, our attractive single blonde, if she is one of uh, Harry's... Harry's, One of Harry's uh, conquests, and, yeah. Uh, she responds in no uncertain terms. Lights him up with a lights him up with a real nice slap to the to the face. Yep, there. yep, yep. That's a it's a it's a head shaker. It is, it is. Well, at this point, they call a halt to dinner and uh, decide they okay. We've we've thrown enough information at you right now. Let's let everybody cool down before this gets out of hand and fists are thrown instead of just slaps. <laughs> and uh, they uh, adjourn dinner, and we see what happens that night. Which is, first thing we see is uh, Nashi's character, the chauffeur, mm -hmm. and the maid meeting in the pool house uh, uh, where they have, uh, on the maid's part, some apparently reluctant but still, you know, full-throated kind of sexual activity here. And uh, we see that someone unidentified creeps mm -hmm. up and watches them have sex. Yeah. yeah. Now, this is one of the weirder things in the film where we're mm -hmm. shown the, uh, the eyes of this person. Mm -hmm. We're not allowed to know who it is right then, even though it's weird because we know a scene mm -hmm. later 
mm-hmm. who it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, almost immediately. Yeah, right. It doesn't really preserve the mystery for very long, you know. So yeah. It's, yeah. But um, the uh, there's this weird, and it's the only time they do this in the film. It's odd. Oh, I know what you're going to say. They put this weird uh, mat over yeah. the screen to hide most of the character's face, and we just see his eyes as he's watching the map set. So he's not looking. He's not looking through a real like hole in the wall or real like I mean it's it's like they yeah it's it's he's mad yeah the, the, there's a mat over his eyes mat. to make it look like he's looking through like a crack in the wall or some sort of but uh, a very a very large crack a very large hole in the wall I'm surprised no one would well, that's just it it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make really, any sense it's no it doesn't I don't, it's I don't, as if they um, what they should have done is just artificially zoomed in on his eyes brought the sure. image up larger instead yeah. of doing what they did because what it is is it's this very cartoonish, strange yeah. thing that's yeah. masking the top and bottom of the image so that you can't tell who it is. I know. That's one of those weird things. You just wonder, like, what in the world prompted that? Like, you know, was it like an afterthought, something that they it forgot to, to film and there's no way they could go, like, they just had to yeah. get the actor and film his face and then do something, no, you make, know, over it, you know. It doesn't so. make any sense at all. I know, I know. Well, the uh, all I kept thinking about this was as the film goes on with the maid, who uh, we see have sex a couple of times, and she, it's very, it, it becomes pretty clear, pretty obvious, fast that she's not really into this whole whatever relationship she's having with Nashi's character. No, <laughs> it's no. one of those things where you kind of feel sorry for, her, but at the same time, it's like, uh, how did you get yourself? How did you get into this? How did this happen? That's almost a story I want to hear, even if it's just one of those. Well, he made me have sex kind of things. And, well, you know, nobody else is around. It's like, yeah, you're not exactly Miss Freelove here. Is <laughs> what in the hell are you doing? I mean, I, 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 and, I know. And, it's, and when, it's, later on, I mean, she has, she has, she, she starts this relationship with the, the flirtatious playboy. Yeah. And, and what you want to do is just step in and go, you have no idea. This guy doesn't give a shit about you. It's like, so you go from the brutish, thuggish chauffeur to the you know to the, to to the, the, to the cad playboy who doesn't even is this, is this honestly really a step up remember, you know, yeah, you know. He, he's not going to remember your name five minutes later uh, be, oh, I, uh, you were uh, <laughs> did you wear underwear I can't remember <laughs> you know. that's what I, it's, 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 I love it at one point after one of their trysts, you know, she's actually asking me, you're going to take me with you, aren't you? You know, oh, and, I know. And he's, you know, and, and, and he's he's like, oh, you know, let's take it one thing at a time, honey, you know. And you said there, you want to say, like, have you, you know, has she ever been off the grounds before? You know, has, she, know. Ever, has she ever stepped foot in the, the world she, outside? She's the... clearly a woman in her 20s. <laughs> yeah. At what point But they're treating she... like she's, I mean, she's like, she kind of, like she's 14 or well, something. she's and acting it. like she's like... Yeah. You know, never had a lover in her life. And it's like, what are you doing, girl? Come on. It's, it's cl- I mean, I hate to I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but he just ain't that India. Yeah. That is true. Well, we see uh, Mr. Gill and his wife. Yes. In their rooms. She insists that Their scenes she, also together are, are pretty, pretty much run along one theme. <laughs> yeah, which is that he's pissed that she was probably one of... Uh, Carlos's uh, the now dead Carlos's uh, lovers and she insists that she was not sleeping with the man now we have two couples here if you you know you can look at it and say like okay they're they're you know we're basically you know the 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 the, the fawns and the gills are, are the yeah the gills you know most of their scenes consist of some sort of argument or over Flirting or jealousy, you know, or yeah. je- the differences it are between them is that Jorge finds, you know, when he's like, his his is more like just kind of, his needling of his wife about her flirting and about, he doesn't really seem too 
particularly bent out of shape about it. I mean, he bothers about it, but their arguing is never really like just, you know, there's not really real no venom in their there, argument. Yeah, it's almost no like you get the feeling that this is just something that goes on between them. Yeah. Whereas the Gills, on the other hand, their arguments have a real venom to them. There's a real anger there that Eduardo Calvo brings to his character that their yeah. discussions are much more serious. You know, his character is obviously really much more torn up about what about he thinks is hurt. Yeah. Than, than the font than, than the fonts is about his. <laughs> the fonts. God, I wish that name was different. I know. Uh, okay, we see we see Francis getting caught by his mother coming back in from outside, and uh, this is what I mean is that we now is, this thing is funny. Now go ahead, go ahead. Well, he's caught by his mother, and he says that he was uh, he was outside, and she goes, "Yeah, I can tell from your shoes." Right. I mean, this is this 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 is where you start to realize how sharp this woman is. Even though yeah. she's an unpleasant character, she's yeah. smart. Yeah, and and she's one of the people throughout the film that is trying to figure out what's going on. So right. that's one thing to mention to her character, Louis Armstrong. As much as you want to hate her for certain things, she actually, in in some ways, also is one of the people that that's trying to seriously seem like she's trying to figure out, really get to the bottom of what the mystery of who. Yeah. what's going on here but exactly let's talk about this scene is great because for a couple levels but there's something this scene is an example of some things that they do that i think are clever visually with establishing this continual um kind of a um theme of of, of just sort of something kind of unplay unhealthy in their relationship yeah. you know the first time we you know we see her at one point i think we're already past this we are past the scene where we've seen her straightening his tie basically right. strangling him as she's doing it and <laughs> And while she's talking to him, you know, and giving him instruction what he's going to do, and she's and she's helping him put on his ties, there's sometimes when he kind of, if his attention drifts or he kind of looks away for a second, she just, like, yanks him back to... I know, she rattles like, his neck, yeah. Yeah, so in this scene... Like a leash. It's yeah. Really, it really is like a leash. Yeah, point. and in this scene right here, where he comes back from the, the spying on the couple in the pool house, he comes back... He comes to his room and turns on, you know, we see her sitting there by his bed in, in the shadows, you know, and he turns on the yeah, light. Yeah, wait, obviously waiting for him. Yeah, and then there's a later scene where she's kind of going over in her head, like, some things about trying to figure out the mystery, and she's walking back and forth in her, her room, and in the background you see him lying in his bed without, it, like, it looks like unclothed or without a shirt, and he's back there in his bed. And it occurred to me that the things they're doing them visually are the things that normally you would see as... A connection between lovers, you know, between, uh, you know, the, the, where they place her and where they yeah. place him. The fact that they have these two adjoining rooms that, you know, that, that she can see into his bedroom. And then the way that, like, this would be a scene normally a lover, you know, like someone would be pacing back and forth and their lover would be back there in the bed. Right. So I think that it's a very visual way of kind of, not that they're actually lovers, but that there's an unhealthy attachment she has in his life and that he has to her and that he's obviously sexually un, you know obviously got some very serious sexual hang-ups you know so i think they do a lot of things yeah. nice visually there well I, their... I agree with you and i had really uh one of the things you left out of that description is him laying back there and in his bed while she's pacing up and down you know talking out loud trying to figure out you know what she can't quite remember something that that mm -hmm. helps her figure something out later on mm -hmm. is that he's laying there in bed just looking through porno mags. Yes, you're right. He's got yeah, he does yeah. have all these porno mags and in this scene getting back to the scene where we're at right here, one thing that cracked me up about it was she thinks that first that he's been out actually dallying with the maid in in the pool house and that's what she's first giving him shit about. But he says no, he says no, actually, she was doing it with the the chauffeur. the chauffeur, and then she's like, 
she put together and realizes that means that he was spying on them and she seems even more disgusted yeah. which I think is the poor guy can't win it's like first she's mad that he's having, that she thinks he's having sex with the maid and then when she finds out he isn't she's like mad because he was watching somebody else I know it's like how, how can you please this woman I mean, what, what can you say or do to please this woman no nos recuerden pero hoy se cumplen dos años de la muerte de mi marido y yo he tratado de reunir a todas aquellas personas para las que su muerte pudo tener algún significado. Me consta que Carlos no murió en un accidente como se ha dicho, sino que su muerte fue algo premeditado por alguien que en este momento está entre nosotros. En pocas palabras, amigos míos, uno de ustedes es el asesino de mi marido. Sí, esto es una broma. Porque espero que solo sea una broma. No tiene gracia. No, no comprendo a qué obedece. No tengo más remedio que exigir una explicación inmediata. Siento decirles que no se trata de ninguna broma. Okay, the next morning we're in a... Some of the, some of the people are out, out back playing croquet. And uh, Miss Periola... Or Parabola. No, I'm not going to remember. <laughs> she makes... Uh, she uh, sneakily makes, makes sure that, she, that Harry knows that she wants to uh, speak with him. Uh, he kind of, he sneaks up and meets her in her room, and uh, turns out they know each other because they just immediately start having sex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, afterwards, they talk, and it turns out that uh, Miss uh, Perilla or Perilla anyway, Perilla, I think. Yes, is planning to marry this rich guy, and uh, she and Harry have uh, plans for after the wedding but they're going to have to kind of cool it a little while with this affair mm -hmm. they're having mm -hmm. so that uh, people don't find out about it and go from there mm -hmm. now and she says she oh. knows who the killer is she's yeah she she definitely knows something but she doesn't want to talk about it with him because, what reason does she give well she says it will reveal things, certain things about her life and oh, see, she I'm wants talking. to tell him right before she leaves so that when he actually, I guess, then reveals it to Lisa, tells everybody else, she won't be there to suffer the embarrassment because of whatever it's going to reveal correct, about correct, correct. her so, sordid past. So she has reasons, but they're they're typical uh, mystery yeah, reasons. And, yeah, exactly. And it's never good in these films for people to say, I'll tell you later. Which happens a lot. It's like, I can't tell you right now. Meet me in a little while and I'll, and I'll tell you. And you always know that's a bad sign. Well, Arlen pulls Miss uh, Martha Horvitt aside and apolog apologizes to her for insulting her the night before dinner. And then um, we see Fawn asking Henry... I'm sorry, asking Harry if he knew his wife before, and he says, no, 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 I didn't. I wish I did, because she's attractive, but no, I didn't. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Lisa gets more information, and it seems that Miss Perioli was in London, or actually, more specifically, Soho, on the day that her husband died, mm -hmm. two years before. Um, confronts with this and says that she was uh, registered in this hotel, under her married name and gives it to her. Well, this is this is done in a discussion with with uh, most of the people around, uh, having this little having this little talk in what looks like a, a den there in the house. And Mr. Martin makes a very pointed question straight to Lisa, which is, you know, all this questioning and all this thing, all this stuff that you're doing. What if the killer starts to feel cornered? Yeah, it's a very valid question. <laughs> what are you? I mean, have you taken into account no. that if? You're hunt that you think you're hunting for a murderer. If you actually yeah. are hunting for a murderer, and they start to feel threatened, what might they do? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's like, can they at least give them, you know, Vincent Price would at least give them all loaded guns, you know, in this, in this, in this situation. So. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Well, one of, the, one of the things is that the uh, the gardener, who's a character who hasn't uh, really shown his face much around this movie mo- yeah, until now. Yeah, I'll say, let's, and even afterwards, he sort of just... <laughs> disappears. Yeah. Well, um, he and, um, well, he, he and uh, Henry, the, uh, the butler... Mm-hmm. Uh, pulled Lisa over to the side and had a conversation with her that we didn't get to hear about earlier. And then, while they're all sitting down to lunch, the gardener comes in and displays this bottle. It's like a about the size of a pill bottle that he seen that he says that he found out uh, someone had dropped out in the yard someplace and uh, asks if anybody knows who it is, knows who it belongs to, and it's a pill bottle that appears to be filled with some kind of white powder. Mm. Now, everybody looks at it, but nobody claims it. So it would appear that somebody may even have some kind of drug problem. Mm. Or maybe they're just, you know, recreational users of white powder for... <laughs> maybe it's talcum powder. Who knows? <laughs> Interesting. We add another layer of weirdness there. The butler lays out the contents of the rooms. He basically gives a report to... Lisa, his boss, mm-hmm. as to what he found going through everybody's rooms while they weren't there, and uh, you know, no, no big surprises outside of the fact that uh, uh, Harry has a handgun that yeah. he keeps in his luggage. Yeah, things like that. Yeah, Mar- he said that uh, Martha, that's the blonde, Miss Miss uh, uh, Hoven, or how 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 Hoven? Or- yeah, let's go with Hoven. Hoven, okay. Um, the the single blonde has uh, very few clothes. I think only has just he said it's that just she four has changes, done, yeah, of clothes. or money. He says very few clothes or money. Oh, and he, he was able to confirm through a couple of letters in Miss Perillo's uh, luggage that her husband is some kind of an he's an American and he's some kind of criminal who who appears to be milking her for money mm. just to leave her alone. And a few other little tidbits of information. Can't read my own He says uh, Arlen didn't bring the artist did not bring any luggage, uh, just some yeah, pencils and paper. Yeah. And uh, oh, and he does mention that uh, Harry was seen uh, uh, um, leaving uh, Mrs. Perilli's room. Ah, uh, yeah. Now I've got a note here about Miss Perilli's husband that is apparently was a high class. We find out that he was a high class thief who right. has escaped from an American prison. Correct. Oh, yeah, that's right. He escaped from an American prison. He's not an American. That's right. Well, next we have Aunt Bertha. Here's here's what happens. There's 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 a kind of uh, breakdown apparently after lunch where yeah, the genders the, the, separate. Yeah, the gender right. We have like we the, have the the women off in one room talking mm-hmm. with each other, and we have the mm-hmm. men off in another. Mm-hmm. And in the room with the women, Aunt Bertha seems to be uh, quizzing everybody, including Miss Miss uh, uh, Hoven. Yes. About her life, mm-hmm. and uh, we find out that uh, she has a a well off father, an industrialist, but that he kind of he wouldn't he would he wouldn't give her any money really and he has her work in some of the hotels he owns and this is where good old aunt bertha goes aha that's where i know you from yeah, a hotel in san tropez yes yeah, she had seen him before and she definitely had seen him before and she's convinced that carlos was staying at that hotel yeah, and you two seeing, knew yeah. each other mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and these scenes are intercut but miss hovet uh, martha there does break down and admit that uh uh, she doesn't have a scent that, yeah, her father is a rich industrialist, but he doesn't give her any money, and that she works as a waitress in hotels. Yes, I do. And she did have a brief, one, a, well, it sounds like a, like a one-night one night thing affair with Carlos years, right. you know, years right. before, but right. he never saw her again, but they never saw each other again. 
this upsets her. She goes for a walk, and Arlen meets her. Uh, the yeah. artist Arlen meets her. By the way, Arlen, uh, we didn't mention this earlier, but he's already at one scene. He actually went out of his way to apologize to her yeah. for we, the crass we, thing that he said at the uh, dinner table that made her slap him in the first place. He has since like kind of sought her out and admitted that he was a real jerk. Right. So they've started actually kind of speaking more and and uh, and in this scene they're walking along trying trying to basically uh, trying to kind of figure some things out and he essentially enlists her aid in trying to figure out who the killer is. Right now I want to ask you something about just just get your thoughts on this because we've talked about this being obviously a cut version, a clothed version, obviously mm-hmm. a Spanish version. Right. The more they kept referring to Miss Hoven, you know, to Martha. As being a waitress and speaking of it in such horrified or such, you know, obviously this is such scandalous, such shameful tones. I finally started to wonder if in this, if actually she's in other versions, if she's actually a prostitute or is actually earning money. Because I'm about that too. Because okay, I understand that this is an upper crust society. I understand that a lot of what this film is about are these people pretending to have money they don't and pretending to you know that trying to that they're all trying to maintain a certain level of you know this is a certain class level here so i thought like okay well it's possible that maybe in this particular society at the time this was made or the particular society they're trying to represent maybe these people maybe the idea of being a waitress especially and they do they do establish that martha is 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 trying to hide the fact that she doesn't have, you know, that she is not very financially well off, you know, that right. she's trying to pretend she has more money than she does. So you can see how maybe being a waitress could be a, a embarrassing to her, but the way they speak about it, the way they bring it up, it seems like so shameful that I kept thinking like, was this to please the censors in Spain? Is waitress actually substituted in the, was that in, in you know, in the dubbing or whatever in place of, of something more, you know, like maybe that she's actually a call girl or something, you know, I just wondered about did the you way, think about that at all? Or did the you way they're treating that? it, yeah, it did seem as if, I mean, maybe because she comes from wealth, because her right. husband, I mean, right. I mean, not her right. husband, but her her father, or her, and I'm assuming her family, yeah. does have money, it is kind of this look-down-your-nose yeah. snobbish thing. Like maybe being a waitress would almost be tantamount to her being like yeah, right. die, such a, enough of a fall from grace as much as being a cowgirl would be, right, you know? Right. But, that's, but, that's kind of what I wondered. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it might have been something they could have pushed over mm. into the realm of her being a prostitute, mm. which would be that thing that allows you to have another little hook to hang on why the artist suddenly gravitates to her and actually mm-hmm. feels more sympathy toward right. her because, because she would be... Because he's kind of a bohemian, the out, he's a little exactly, bit of an outsider himself. So, I don't know. Yeah. It works either way. It does. It does. Yeah, but it's yeah. But I kept thinking. I eventually was like, like, man, they're really making a big deal out of this. Her being this waitress. This is really obviously a shameful, <laughs> and really and she's shameful breaking thing down to be. Tears? I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's very odd. Well, in the uh, the men's room, Mister Martin is talking about how. Uh, well, he he says, well, look, I trust my wife Sylvia. I don't. I'm not worried that she had some affair with Carlos. But I do know that Carlos did try to seduce her at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fawn says basically the same. Uh, you know, I, I'm not really worried about my wife either. Turns out that Mr. Fawn probably should have had some worries later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some tension between Arlen and Fawn, and this is the point at which Arlen leaves and then runs into um, Martha outside and enlists her aid in figuring out who the killer is. It looks mm-hmm. like the two of them are going to try to work together to figure this out. Maybe two Did, heads are better than one. Didn't he also say that he knows somebody in Scotland Yard who's told him they've reopened that case? And right. so he's like, they've actually reopened this, uh, this, this case this for case, Carla, Carlos' murder. Just, yeah. Yeah. It's not just his wife right. who's poking but around actually, in this. this they've actually, she's kind of gotten enough information for mm-hmm. them independently to actually reopen this case. Right. 
So then we at, we see that in the afternoon or early evening, everybody's sitting around playing card games, apparently mm-hmm. poker. Right. Uh, we see that Francis is a scumbag feeling up Martha under the table. <laughs> no, he's, yeah. he's such a sleaze. <laughs> I think we've already we may pass the scene too where I think he's uh yeah we have because earlier when they were they were, when they were out playing croquet uh, he starts coming on to the second now there's a there's a second oh, there's maid another waitress. who's uh, uh, another maid who's yeah. almost a uh, don't say waitress she's a prostitute don't people <laughs> think she's a prostitute God, prostitute horrible. no but uh but this is a um, there, is, there are actually two maids, and the second one is actually even minor, even more of a minor character than yeah. nothing ever really happens with. Other than that, she, I mean, she's, she's had, she's got a couple of scenes, but nothing of real. I mean, she's not even got anything going on with anybody in the film other than just being a maid. But she, but, but, but Francis comes on to her and makes her drop a glass and breaks it, and that gets him in trouble with Aunt Bertha. So, yeah, uh, he, it, yeah. it's hideous. And here he's trying to put his hand up Martha's skirt. Yeah, so he's 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 uh, he's definitely got some arrested development there. <laughs> Well, Harry and Miss Fawn have gone outside to just walk around the rain, but it starts to rain a little bit, and it chases them into the wine cellar, mm-hmm. and uh, Miss Fawn makes a very strong pass at Harry. Yeah. I mean, not Harry. Uh, Henry. See, and then Henry. we need to clarify that. No, 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 Harry Stevens. Henry is the butler. Henry is the, yes. But, so yeah, she yeah. makes a really strong pass at Harry in the wine cellar, and he kind of gives her a very casual brush right, off. Right, right, right. And what's funny is that we get well, okay, we we get we then get a scene with Aunt Bertha telling Lisa that she's learned something, she's figured something out, and uh, she doesn't want prying ears mm-hmm. to, to hear this, so let's get up early in the morning yes. at seven AM oh, yeah. and meet in the library and discuss yeah. this. Right, right. And then we get Miss Fawn going back to her room after being brushed off by Harry and uh, encounters Henry the butler. Then she yes, okay. And she makes a pass. See, at I was him. even getting confused over which was which. But you're right. First well, she gets yeah. re- first she gets refused by Harry. Then she tries Henry. And yeah. she yeah she gets uh, it's it's a no go with both of them. So. Right, right. So she's got to be and feeling, actually uh, and actually makes me I actually felt a little sympathy for the I did character too. at this I point. Really I thought did. she was actually sympathetic because she's an attractive woman and and she's. But she's, seem, and she's obviously at, lonely. I mean, you figure there's yeah. probably nothing between her and her husband as far as, you know. And she's, yeah, she's just kind of throwing herself at these two guys who both, you know. Uh, who are both single. Yeah, both single. And, you know, and you figure they probably don't, based on what we learn later in their character, they probably don't actually refuse her because they're not attracted to her. It's probably just because of they're both are otherwise occupied with other things that are going on. As well, pretty know. much, pretty much. Well, next we have the first injection, if that's... Yeah, 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 yeah. The first say, injection. Let's, let's, uh, let's watch our turn, watch our phrasing. Man. Watch our phrasing, phrasing, phrasing. I can't believe we're not doing phrasing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we have our first giallo element. Yes, yes. The black gloves make their yes. Appearance. The black gloves. The first person, uh, first person viewpoint camera shot. Black glove person, and we see this person cut the phone, cut the phone line. Lines. Now you know it's the seventies because he cuts the phone line right next to the phone. And he doesn't have to worry about going Doing, anywhere else because anything, that's the yes, only phone. That's the only phone. That's right. <laughs> it's the 70s, baby. <laughs> oh, boy, ain't that true. Well, Harry goes back to Harry goes back to his room, mm-hmm. and uh, the maid is there. Our, our little maid, Elena, is there. And uh, they pretty quickly make out and make plans to meet in the pool house. Oh, of course, because that's that the evening. only place you can have sex in this. In I was this, trying to figure out why didn't they have just sex? Why didn't they just go ahead and get down to he's, it right He's here? ready to, and she's like, like, no, no, let's, you know, don't you don't you know how we do things in this society? We go to the, the pool, pool house. house. Yeah. <laughs> that's the only place to have sex in this house. <laughs> sad, sad, but seemingly true. Yeah. Um, we we see uh, in this group of people, uh, well, we're off in Mr. and Mrs. Martin's room at this point, and Mr. Martin is... Uh, 
I, I like him as a character. He he um, he's definitely a thoughtful, intelligent man, and certainly yeah, someone is, who gets caught up in this that mm-hmm. for, for no good reason whatsoever. And he's talking to his wife, and he and he tells her that he feels that he was. He was selfish to marry her because, honestly, he's a little too old for her, and she disabuses him of this belief mm-hmm. pretty quickly. Yeah. She flat out says to him that, you know, she is completely happy. Mm-hmm. That regardless of anything that happened before their marriage, she's completely happy and that he shouldn't feel this way. And I thought that was a neat little scene, and it establishes the relationship between as, that that couple. Very I was about to say, they seem to be the ones who are actually making it work. You know, right. they seem a little bit devoid of, of particular troubles or tensions, and, you know, and, and he does seem like the most, like, kind of a, a naturally kind person in this film. Uh-huh. You know, it's kind of, so, yeah. Well, we see Harry creep out, mm-hmm. and uh, creep out to go to the pool house, and we also see that he's being followed by our man, Nashi. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Ernst, the chauffeur, is keeping mm. an eye on that mm. uh, wily, flirtatious playboy yeah. bastard. Or oh, the Skid Row... Was it Skid Row Don Juan? Skid Row Don Juan. Skid Row which, Don Juan. Honestly, that, that, that's, that's a classic title. Skid <laughs> Row Don Juan. Skid Row Don Juan. Aunt Bertha has a few good lines in this She movie. is. She does. Well, uh, Miss Fawn uh, wants to leave. She informs her husband as they're bedding down for the evening that she's kind of bored with this place now and she's mm-hmm. ready to leave. Of course, we know the reason is because she's just been humiliated and humiliated yeah. herself in front of two guys and she just kind of wants to get out of there. Um, and she's even talking about Harry like he's like kind of sleazy now, you know, where she oh, had I been know. talking about what a, what a charming and cool guy he was. Well, I wrote this down. I love this quote. She says, At first, I found his gallantries and his stupid jokes amusing. But he ended up boring me. <laughs> <laughs> Not in the way you wanted, honey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, did, he didn't bore you the way you wanted. That's true. <laughs> uh, well, we see Elena out in the playhouse, uh, and uh, Harry meets her, and he, she, she's, she tells him, you know, look, we probably shouldn't do this. Mm-hmm. Tells her about the relationship she has with uh, uh, Hernez, the the chauffeur, and. Mm-hmm. How he's a brute and she doesn't really want to be with him, and he of course talks her into sex pretty quickly. Well, I was gonna say that probably only makes Harry want her even more, finding out that she's got another another man. I think that actually probably even increases <laughs> probably does spice it up yeah. for him now. Uh, um, and I kept waiting for 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 Nashi to burst in on this sequence. Yeah, there's yeah, I know exactly. There's there's a lot that doesn't happen with this whole storyline with uh with the maid and and, and with, with the maid and the chauffeur. It's like. What is, and, I, and it's gonna. I think it all comes back to the chauffeur character. Um, there's almost a feeling that I have that the chauffeur character was actually filmed with another actor, and then they had the opportunity hmm. to get Nashi in, like as a favor. They could pay him for one day, and they decided to make it to, to refilm those sequences hmm. with him. Well, it does make me it. wonder because it sure as hell doesn't build to anything, and it and it uh, and it's kind of well, crazy. At best, he's a red herring. Yeah, it's yeah, and uh, well, you know, the credits even end with the big, you know, extra credit for you know the special, you know, special appearance by, by, of, by yeah. you know Paul Nash. It's like yeah, okay, you know, <laughs> which I mean, which again, once again, kind of shows his star power at that time. If they right. felt it was important enough to you know to point to the fact that hey, we got Paul Nash for like you know. T- 30 seconds of screen time there. exactly he's got I think I think if we paid him by the word then he's rich forever <laughs> well we see Aunt Bertha um, she's having another conversation with uh, her her boy Francis and she's rattling off all this information and, and one, she has another one of my favorite lines in here she says nothing bothers me more than people who won't stay where they belong <laughs> yeah talking about class again, yeah oh yeah <laughs> which is, which is, which is <laughs> great is, it is great 
where she shows her snobbishness to the to the utmost. It's beautiful. Uh, she seems to think that she has a good idea of who the killer is, and uh, she that she informs Francis that she you know she's getting up early the next morning to sneak down to the library to meet with Lisa and to tell her what she knows. Well, seems that uh, it's time for the Black Glove, Glove Killer to show up again. Because he strikes. It's time to kill somebody before people walk out of the theater. Precisely we because this movie is now one hour. hour one hour at the one you wait to the one hour mark for the first killing, and so now, admittedly, it's taken so long that the 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 killing does actually come as a bit of a, a shock. A shock because you've gotten so you know it's like it's it's you've gotten so used to people strolling and talking and and meeting in the pool house and nothing happening, and then suddenly, bam, you know. So 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 in some ways. You know, it, 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 it uh, yes, there is, there is something, to, there is something to be said for making people wait for it, you know, so. And it, it is funny that you can, you can check the time and it is the one hour oh, mark the one when hour this murder mark happens. When that knife strikes the heart there in Miss Paroli there, it's the yeah. one hour mark. So uh, the black glove killer who, uh, we do not, we do not see their face, definitely comes up behind Miss Paroli as she's sitting at her mirror mm-hmm. and puts a knife through her chest. And I guess because of the fact that I'd already figured out that this was a cut or censored print, it surprised me how graphic the you know that particular some of the you know how graphic that that, that yeah. particular killing was. So yes, yeah, so Miss Paroli is uh, is 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 no longer among the thirteen. Well, the next scene is we see Henry who has just you know had sex with the uh, no, Harry. Yeah, that, that, that's because Harry. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, my, Harry, my, Harry. my handwriting is hideous. People. Well, it's, we yeah, see yeah. Harry, who has just you know finished having sex with the the little maid and mm. and patted on her head and and, and explained to, explain she... to her that unicorns don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> don't you love the way she caresses the door when he walks out of the door? It's like the fact that he touches the door is That's like she's I now mean. just like wow. And <laughs> I think we see why you're a maid, and I think we see why you did not progress further. And someone needs to explain to her that <laughs> that gummy bears aren't really bears. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the reason he he was getting away from Elena as quickly as he could has nothing to do with the fact that he probably wouldn't bang her again, but mm-hmm. that he had a meeting set up with Miss Perillo mm-hmm. in the wine cellar. Mm-hmm. So he goes down there to meet her, unaware that Miss Perillo has already met her fate via mm-hmm. knife to chest. Right. And, well, let's just say Harry doesn't show up too well here either because yeah. he turns around, there's someone there, he begs for, he begs them not to do it, and nope. Hatchet to the face. Hatchet to the face, and that, yeah, and uh, I got a feeling that that was more graphic than we're seeing because we get a frame. We basically get a frame. Yes, ladies and yes, gentlemen, there's a thunderstorm going on right now. This is what should have been going on in this film: is we didn't get the yeah, thunderstorm in the old dark house. We're getting our own thunderstorm in our old dark podcast. Today, so, uh, <laughs> it's true. But uh, yes, that 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 almost timed perfectly when you said hatchet to the face. We got the thunder uh, start. That's awesome. We could not have planned that. Well, the, here's the terrible thing. Now I want. Now I want a podcast called the Old Dark Podcast. The Old Dark Podcast. I know. <laughs> so so yeah, because but we get this one frame of what yeah. looks like a hatchet bearing in a fake. Oh, I know. Head. I, I, did you frame through it too? I did not. Yeah, I did not go frame yeah, by yeah, frame. I but I bet that that was filmed in, in a much more graphic fashion in another cut. I bet if if we were to get our hold, uh, get a hold. I of, honestly uh, wondered what they'd done, which is why I went through it frame by frame. Yeah. Cecilia. Cecilia. No. No tiene nada. No. Llamaba la señora. Podías llamar por lo menos, ¿no? 
¿Para qué? Cualquiera de los que están aquí no se sorprendería al verte de esa forma. Guillermo, no voy a consentir que sigas insultándome. Creo que todo ha quedado lo suficientemente aclarado. No ha quedado aclarado nada, ¿lo entiendes? Nada. Tu príncipe azul, ese estúpido gigolo, se niega a admitir que fuiste su amante. Pero para mí está muy claro. No tienes ningún derecho a tratarme así. ¿Y cómo se trata una cualquiera? Porque eso es lo que tú eres. Además de Harry, Stephen y Carlos Mandel, ¿cuántos amantes has tenido? Mañana me voy. Estoy harto y no aguanto más. Debes considerar que nuestro matrimonio ha terminado. Puedes hacer lo que quieras. Estoy cansada de esta pobreza, de no tener nunca un céntimo. ¿Qué esperabas? Soy joven y tengo derecho a la vida. Laura, por favor. Solo intentaba ayudarte a salir de la miseria. ¿De dónde crees que ha salido el dinero estos últimos años? Well, we immediately cut to everyone gathered in the den. And by the way, when, uh, you know, the... We've suddenly got a one-two killing punch, you know. Right. And, and I don't think any of us expected Harry to meet his demise this earlier. No, definitely Early, not. And at this point, I was thinking, oh, yeah, here we go. They made us wait an hour. Now the killing starts, and this last 30 minutes is just going to be one frenzied bloodbath. One bloodbath, bath. No, yeah. and it isn't. But anyway, we'll go ahead. Well, no, we'll but it, 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 I think you're, like I say, I think you're forgetting the, the Agatha Christie oh, well, I know, I know. And, 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 yeah, aspect it's, it's, of this. Yes, yeah, sure. So. Yeah, no, I know. It's true. Uh, in case anybody's wondering, if you occasionally hear fur brushing against microphones, that <laughs> yes. would be Katie the cat. Yes, making Just imagine, her presence. Yes, now. yes. You're, you're, there are times when our yeah our speakers are looking straight up her butt. So yeah, <laughs> imagine that while you're sitting and listening to it. To our <laughs> Sorry, folks, for the image there. Well, at any rate. But just um, remember, uh, Katie is more important than you, and she'll be the first. And to tell she you will that. be the first to tell you that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> everybody's gathered in the den. And uh, Lisa explains to uh, everyone assembled there. Everyone's assembled there except, strangely enough, they, they, they can't find Harry. But mm-hmm. it explains that Miss Perillo has been murdered. At this point, she says flat out, okay, things have gone too far. We're going to we're gonna have to get hold of the police. But unfortunately, the phone lines have been cut, so we're going to have to take a car. But whoever the killer is has yeah. made sure that that's going to be a bit more difficult because they've done away with the brakes on everybody's cars. Yes, and it says that uh, they they finally found some use for Paul Nashie. He's apparently out there they're uh, fixing the cars, trying to get one of them going. He's trying to get one of the brakes fixed so mm-hmm. that somebody can go for the police. Mm-hmm. Well, at that point, one of the maids <laughs> comes in, whispers in <laughs> Lisa's ear, and they discover that Henry has been found with a hatchet to the face. Yeah, yeah. So now they know there have been two murders, mm-hmm. and this ramps up things terribly, and everybody is losing their shit. Yeah. Now, Aunt Bertha puts her finger on it right then. She says, what did those two people know that got them killed? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Once again, I just want to say that as, as much of a pain in the ass and a snob as Aunt Bertha is... Yeah, she's no dummy. Yeah. She's not a stupid person. No. Well, they mother of the year, no. Mother of the stu- year, no. But not a stupid person. Yeah. Uh, well, at this point, basically everybody comes to the conclusion that look, if we just we, we could stay in our rooms and we could stay safe until the cops show up. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that would keep us all safe because then we're all separated. But we don't all want to be in one place either. It's you know, so they're kind of dithering. They don't really know what to do. Right. Well, it looks like they decide, okay, to hell with it. Everybody in their rooms. Aunt Bertha is in her room and she is pacing back and forth and talking it out. Talking about the two things that she, the, the things that she knows, and how she thinks that she's got it nailed down, but it looks like that there may have been more than one way to skin a cat on this. She thinks that somebody else figured it out in a way that's not the way that she figured it out. Mm-hmm. 
And we, I think it is at this point that we learn that Lisa actually does have a lover, and it is, in fact, the butler. Yes. It is, in fact, Henry. Henry. Yes, indeed. They are definitely mm-hmm. uh, big-time lovers. They are in this together. They, are, they have been plotting together to figure this out and to find out who it was who killed her husband. Now, they're, they're sitting there in bed, or laying there in bed, kind of post-coital and having a conversation, and uh, it seems these murders... Uh, and I, I love this conversation because this is this is this is a conversation you wouldn't have had in a movie since roughly the late '80s, early '90s. It was after that when people realized, wow, this kind of sounds stupid. But, I know what you're gonna say. Yeah, I had this written down too. Yeah. <laughs> well, they t- well they talk about the fact that these two murders uh, here in the house seem to have been done by a man. Yes. Because because, because there's one one was with a hatchet and one was too, with a knife to the chest. Brutal. They're too yeah. brutal. And but the thing is that the death of Carlos, her husband was definitely a kind of feminine murder because they used poison. And that's kind of the, the, the standard yeah. female murder. Well, murder. his reasoning is even better. I, I love what he says. He says, because uh, only a woman would offer to make coffee. You know, that's he says yep. those exact words. Make, make and serve coffee. Make and serve coffee. Yeah, yeah. Make and serve. I, I love that. I, that's just, yeah, you're right. It's like, you know, only men kill brutally, but, but, but. Well, but. the thing is, I wanted to step in and actually say, I don't know about that, Carlos, because yeah. if I was going to poison somebody, I might go, hey, why don't I go make some coffee? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, so I love your '70s logic, sir. Yes, but yeah, but, it would not hold up in court now. So, yeah. All right. So the next morning, uh, Aunt Bertha gets up out of bed, gets dressed, and is sitting there. And it's obvious that she's just biding her time until seven a.m. so she can go down and have this long conversation with Lisa, where she lays out exactly who the killer is. When the killer sneaks up behind her with his black gloves on and garrots her ass, mm-hmm. full out strangles her, blood blood coming out of the neck, the whole nine yards. Goodbye, Aunt Bertha, mm-hmm. you snobbish bitch. <laughs> <laughs> now, we've, we've already figured out that our killer is does not like to kill anyone the same way twice. And all. that's one thing we're going to And that is now, is that a staple? Is that something that makes you think of Giallo or more of a... That is whodunit? kind of Giallo-esque. Although there have been plenty of you know straightforward whodunits in which the mur- you know murder yeah. weapons switched. I mean yeah. you know yeah. I mean let's let's talk about the 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 old clue board game for God's sake. Well yeah, you know, true. Lead pipe yeah. wrench. Yeah, lead pipe all yeah. the different murder you know. So this is a garrot uh, to Aunt Bertha, and yeah, she she actually does come away with a clue before she. That's uh, right. In her in her death struggle, she does manage to rip a button off the killer's jacket. We don't see who the killer is, but we know she rips a button off of off of his jacket. And he knows it too because he's trying to force her hand open, uh, but someone is. You know, the, mm. the, their struggles have awakened poor yeah. fr- poor little Francis there, and he jets out of the room before he comes in, and so that button is still there in her hand. In her hand. Here's, here's this back up just a second because sure. I want to point out something that I want to see what you made of or did when the first killing happens, uh, yeah. uh, uh, Miss Paroli. Do you remember what she does when she gets stabbed? Um. Not, she not, scrawls not sure. in lipstick, oh, well, yeah, she which forward. ends up being nothing. Which yeah, I it's just thought this that squiggle that was, on the on the mirror, and I thought that was kind of neat because I thought, oh, it's going to be gonna some be a kind clue. of clue, but it wasn't. Okay, so you thought it was so so. You thought that it was clever that it turned out not to be a clue. And I, well, yeah, well, I, what I love is that uh, you can you can look at it and you can see that she may have been thinking that. You can see the look in her eyes, it, yeah. which is something that gives you that you little like, click. Like she knows who it is. Uh huh. 
but nothing comes of it. It's obviously just a squiggle down the mm. down the mirror, so there's mm. nothing there that you could even possibly decipher. So I thought that was neat, and I did wonder if something somebody might say something about it later on. Yeah, as yeah. in trying yeah, to look I at it, it down see like, if, oh, you know, I was thinking like, okay, this is going to be significant at some point. You know, like she left them something that that the killer might not realize, but that she's going right. to. But it, ne- it never it comes never up again, and, okay. that's, and that's kind of interesting. It's one of those. Uh, it's one of those things that uh, it, it's kind of a staple of this kind of murder mystery, this kind of uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, isolated isolated mm-hmm. house murder mystery. But mm-hmm. it's not one that they do anything with, which I think is neat because they kind of point toward it and then they go, "Nope, not doing that. Goodbye." Mm-hmm. Okay. So, okay. Well, then we have another little gathering where we <laughs> we we this is I, I just I label it another gathering. Uh, we mm-hmm. we have to leave here. Everybody's like, "Okay, we got to get the hell out of here." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this 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 doesn't seem to fit the first two murders. Somebody points out that this murder, the garroting of Aunt Bertha, this doesn't seem to really fit the other two murders, which were vicious, mean spirited stabbings and, and 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 whackings with a hatchet. Yeah, let me stop you right there and just throw. I think there's a detail we need to oh, which just point out because I don't think we said, but the when the killer has to leave the button in Aunt Bertha's hand, right? Okay. The next we realize that it's Lisa, Mr. Martin, and Arlen are kind of the ones who are who are seeing to her, oh, yeah. who are seeing to closing up the room where her body is, you know, before they go tell the others. And we see the hand then open, and Mr. Martin takes the button out of the hand. He's looking at the button as they're talking about, right. you know, how they're going to break the news to Francis. Just want to throw that out there. Now, now, then we go to what we're talking about here, where they're all kind of meeting again. They're being informed about Aunt Bertha. They're all saying, you know, hey, there's danger here. I think we may want to get out of here. Well, this is the, this is where we get to the point where we kind of have to negotiate where we want to stop talking about this film because I actually don't want to ruin the I was, I was wondering what you were, yeah. Because, Although you and I definitely have to talk about some things off the air, though. Okay, okay fine, okay, fine. But, but this movie has one of those neat murder mystery double punches where the mystery gets solved, at least to the, to, uh, the satisfaction of a lot of the characters, and then the film comes to a conclusion, and then the characters still left around realize, wait a minute, we were wrong, or at least incorrect in some of the details, and there's something else going on as well. Mm-hmm. And this movie has one of those, and that's why I don't want to ruin that. I don't even want to ruin the first punch. Right. Uh, but I will say that uh, in this movie... See, my question to you was going to be, does it have a triple punch, which we're going to have to talk about off the air. But okay, okay. Go, but anyway, go ahead. Well, I do, I, I do want to, I do want to say that uh, one of the joys of this movie for me was watching Eduardo Calvo take a uh, a wrench to, to Paul Nash's, Paul Nash's head. As you know, he always wanted to. And uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yes, yes, uh, yeah. Let's might as well say it because we've already established the character of Ernest means absolutely nothing. So neither, neither really does his. His death is kind of a throwaway yeah. death, but it is kind of a neat one because you, you do get to but see it. it. But it is a story. It is a throwaway death that does help to explain yes. one of one of the uh, one of the conclusions, right? Right. As to who the murderer is, yeah. which is yeah. kind of nice. Yeah. The uh, I think for in depth discussion of the plot of the story, let's go ahead and just kind of leave off there and try to talk in generalities about some of the things. I will do my best from here. I will on. try not to. Okay. Uh, uh, we'll, Sounds we'll, fair. We will um, try. Yeah, because like because I said, this is a film that if you, you know, again not easy to get this, your hands on, but if you're used to getting films in a certain way, you get this film. It's it's um I, I, another reason I don't want to spoil it too much is because um it, it is a very nice print, and so it's not a struggle to watch, and so in that case, I'd say you know it's worth 
hunting out for that reason, you know, if you really do like to watch these, which are, you know, but in some cases you're like, just, oh God, I can hardly see what's going on. This is actually a, a, a good, a good looking print. So, uh, I, I agree. And the thing is, this is, uh, I, I, this movie is in a lot of ways right up my alley for a couple of different reasons. One, it's, you know, it's a Spanish made film in the 1970s, which it makes it something that I'm interested in. Right. But one of the other genres that I am interested in is I, I especially love locked door mysteries, but I also mm. love these kind of Agatha Christie, right. isolated English manor house sure. mystery stories a lot. And I know that they're probably, the Venn diagram of Spanish horror fans and Agatha Christie fans probably doesn't meet very, <laughs> very, for very much space. Mm. And that, that Venn diagram doesn't have a lot of crossover, but I am one of those people mm. who enjoys both of these things. And I'm assuming that there are at least some people out yeah. there who are Nashy fans who get a kick out of those kind of that you know straight ahead murder mystery stories as well, and so I don't I don't want to ruin the the double at least double punch ending right. this film has, uh, but we will say that Nashy's character doesn't make it to the end, mm-hmm. so there's that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we 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 will say that uh, that uh, he he meets it uh, rather violently. Yes, let's also say I think we can say this without giving anything away is amazingly enough, Elena the maid does. And oh, it's like and that is the craziest thing. I was like, just I mean, is like, is this this absolutely uh, brainless, gullible, sex having uh, maid who you just figure like is all the uh, like everything points to this girl is basically meat. Oh, Chris, she's Chris for the meal. Yeah. She survives. You know, <laughs> it's basically the story between her and Nashi in this kind of like the it goes nowhere. You know, it's just it's, very it's, strange. It's now, very odd once again, she does, yeah. once again, I think there's a lot of things. I think there's a lot of things in this film that. Maybe you and I, and you and I may have like it may have, may have reacted a little different to some things in here because there's a lot of things in this film you can look at as choose to look at or it can affect you as either a disappointment or you know a sign of oh okay true as a sign of something that went something that should have gone somewhere and didn't or you can look at it as something that is a nice surprise that it doesn't because it's a nice red herring or it's nice, I forget the feeling that it's, I get the feeling there's things in this film that struck you in that way, the latter way, you know, a sense of like, that you're like, okay, yeah, I appreciate yeah. that this set up my expectations and didn't do it. And whereas I'm seeing is kind of like a thread that was, that, that should have been played out to something or, you know, or, and, and that was left dangling or that was like, that it got, that it wrote itself into some corners in places, you know, and so whereas, and so, you know, I'm just yeah, kind of getting that impression. You're, but like you're so, right, you're right. And I can totally see how you could look at it. I mean, like I said, there's things that you really honestly, it's just how they strike you and how you look at them. You can look at them either way, you know. You can, so. Uh, well, like I said, I was fully on board for the Agatha Christie mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, murder mystery aspect of this, and I didn't mm-hmm. need uh, I didn't need the flashy gore that we get. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some you know so, some flashy '70s gore here. Yeah, that actually brings. Okay, so would you agree that if you go into this film? Expecting a giallo, you're going to be more disappointed than if oh, yeah. you go into it oh, yeah, thinking yeah, yeah. of it as as uh, in Agatha yeah. Christie land and all. So I think that answers our question right there about what is the film is like because if you're a giallo fan, you're definitely going to expect the the body count to be higher. Now I have to say, even as a whodunit fan, even okay, just to point this out, there's actually 18 characters altogether. It says among 13. Right. That's not counting the That's not counting the staff. staff. Yeah. The way you throw the wait staff in, including the strange gardener that we never actually seems to be some sort of informant of some kind, uh, but we never really are clear because he only has about three scenes and we're not... Uh, but anyway, so there's 18 characters altogether. Just to tell people right now, you know, less than half of those people die in the film. Let's just put it that way. Now, yeah. Yeah. obviously in a whodunit, you can't kill everybody. You have to keep enough characters alive to keep the mystery of who the killer is, you know, before you get that final reveal. So I didn't expect the body count to be higher. I think I was expecting 
and I'm not, I don't judge a film necessarily by its body count, except maybe in this case I was kind of more in the mood for something a little more juicy, juicy, you know, not necessarily as, I mean, I understood why, you know, you definitely don't want it. It's not going to be like a slasher film where you get down to the one last person left alive, but I still felt it was a little anemic, you know, for, in, okay. in terms of, in terms of actual characters being knocked off, you know, I thought that, uh, that, that it was, uh, if nothing else, I found it a little strange, you know, I, I thought it was kind of unusual, but, but once again, you can say that that's another part of, of subverting, you know, your expectations, you know, that it, that people actually didn't do the story as just a body count film, you know, so. True, very true. So, anyway, that's just, just some, some, some of the thoughts I had about that, you know, that, uh, but, yeah. Well, now, I will say that, um, well, I want to, I want to talk about this, first of all, is like, yeah, I went into this, uh, not looking for it to be a giallo, because I never was under the impression that it was. Mm-hmm. Um, the initial description of it that I read did set me up for it to be a kind of uh, Agatha Christie style mystery, so that's what I went in looking for. That's what mm-hmm. I got. Mm-hmm. It was juiced up with some, you know, some giallo flavorings, as mm-hmm. like a little bit of mm-hmm. spice sprinkled over the right. <laughs> sprinkled over the uh, the stew mm-hmm. that might have just mm-hmm. been a little bit too bland without it. Mm-hmm. So uh, I got a nice mixture. I enjoyed mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Now. I also want to point out something else. I yes. mentioned earlier in the podcast, uh, podcaster Terry Frost from Australia, who uh, has mentioned a few times how he's not a big fan of uh, murder mysteries in general in the Agatha Christie vein because he always feels that they're that they're a little cold-hearted because there's this murder that's taken place and the entire engine that drives the story has absolutely nothing to do with the horrible fact that someone's being killed. It is just simply this puzzle box that you're trying to solve about who did this thing, and it's just a, it's just a, the who done it aspect has no heart essentially. Mm-hmm. Well, I like the fact that this film, while being an Agatha Christie styled who done it puzzle box kind of thing, mm-hmm. kind of gets around that by setting the murder mystery whodunit aspect of it a full two years after the death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Therefore, giving that the characters that space in right. time yeah. and to have gotten over or gotten past the, the grief mm-hmm. or the shock or the whatever you want to call it and to, to be in a position that these, these stories often put the, their characters, which is this cold-hearted ability to coldly examine mm-hmm. The, the facts and the people and the motivations at hand to try to figure out who did what and where and when and why. It's like a, it's like the way that a lot of them begin with the reading of a will. You know, right. it's like somebody's passed on, but... It's recent. It's yes. just yeah. happened. Right, right. And, you know, it's within the past few weeks. This film starts full mm-hmm. two years mm-hmm. right. after the murder, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. the death, the murder. We find out it was definitely a murder. Mm-hmm. And I like that aspect of it because it also gives the characters who are trying to figure this out a lot of time, especially the ones who, the, Lisa, the, 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 the widow, some, somewhat of a large amount of time to have been sussing out all these people and figuring out who was the more likely person to have been the murderer. Right. I like that aspect of it. It's a very clever conceit to have said it two years after the fact. They could have even said it a full, just, just a year after the fact, but a two years even gives you more of a, more of a, a passage of time to allow for the collection of all this information uh, we we get that little piece of information about how um, Scotland Yard has opened this case uh, back up well after the fact because they ruled it an accident initially and things of that nature. I like that aspect of it, and it does get completely around that. Not un, it's not a a really common thing, but it is something that more than one people, not just Terry Frost, have brought yeah. up as being a reason to, to <laughs> right. kind of not enjoy that sure. aspect sure. of a of a of a. Yeah. 
Agatha Christie style murder mystery. Mm -hmm. So, having said that, uh, I enjoyed this movie. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't. I, I don't know uh, that it's one that I'll ever go back to with any any regularity. Right. I did enjoy it both times I watched it. I like a murder mystery. I like one where the characters. Um, I can. I, I could have even enjoyed the characters being a little bit more nasty, sleazy, and and um, mm -hmm. unpleasant to be around. Uh, that that doesn't bother me either. But this one's really neat. It's not. Well. Let me recommend a film that came out a few years before this that I think is similar to this mm -hmm. without the giallo aspects, but it's a much more stylish and interesting film. Uh, it's a movie called The Last of Sheila, which is this fantastic film with James Coburn and, uh, my God, the cast The cast is astonishing. But mm. it's a film uh takes place on another... It's another isolated location. What mm -hmm. it is is uh, it's a... It's a yacht where this fellow, a couple of years after the death of his wife right. in a car accident, has gathered uh, a bunch of his friends together to go out uh, on, a, on a cruise. And when he does these kinds of things in the past, he, he always uh, he likes to create these games for everybody to play while they're on this yacht trip as they go around the Mediterranean. And he, being a pretty wealthy guy, has set up some, some pretty neat little puzzles in some of the ports that they go to, mm -hmm. in some of the cities that they go to, yeah. and so it's this really elaborate thing, and it's and it's all this fun, and, and the, the the death was years ago, but he makes it plain that he feels that his wife's death wasn't necessarily an accident, mm -hmm. and so as the movie goes on, you begin to realize that he is using these games oh, yeah. to try to figure out mm -hmm. who might have had the opportunity wow. and the desire. To kill his wife. That sounds really good. It's called The Last of Sheila. Last of Sheila. I I've highly never heard of that. recommend yeah. it. Wow. That sounds really good. And it's similar mm -hmm. in what it's doing and how it's doing it to this film. It's not nearly as I mean, Last of Sheila is much better. Mm -hmm. But those are those types of movies who are I mean, they're they're not that common, let's be honest. I can only name those two <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. that that are you know that, that are uh, so similar. Uh, not that there aren't other movies of this type, of course, that's obvious. Uh, Agatha Christie wrote 125 <laughs> hey, of right. things. But this is a story type that I really get a kick out of. And this is a pretty good one, in my opinion. Okay. Yeah, you're right. If you went into this looking for Deep Red or oh, yeah, any yeah. other giallo, if you're looking for those tropes in this film, mm. you ain't going to find them. You're going to find the Black Glove Killer, and that's mm. about it. Right. And if the Black Glove Killer only kills three people or so, three or however many people, you ain't really going to get a whole lot of joy out of it. <laughs> so, I enjoyed it. Um, I don't normally do this, but I'll go ahead and tell you. I, I gave it a six out of ten. Okay. I don't think it's a great movie. Mm -hmm. I did enjoy it. Mm -hmm. um, if you're a Nashy fan, he's not in it enough to really draw you to right, it. Right. But if you're a murder mystery fan, this mm -hmm. is probably a film for you. Mm -hmm. So Okay. All right. Well, um, I gave it a five. Okay. I uh, and I think I'm probably I'm probably not as big a fan of the Agatha Christie kind of thing as you are. Although I do like them to a point, and I knew going into this that it was likely from the title I was figuring it's going to be one or the other. It's going to be a Jalo or it's going to be an Agatha Christie kind of send up, you know, one or the other. And so I was trying to view it in both those you know, fashions or judge it as like, see what it turned out to be. Oh, you know what? I just brought up my listing. Actually, what I wrote down for it was a seven instead of a six. But as we've discussed it, I thought I'd given it a six. So I guess my well, initial reaction Well, that can sometimes happen. Was, well, listen yeah. for it. Well, my initial I, reaction was a seven. I'll, so. I'll tell you this. Uh, this is kind of, uh, I enjoyed 
just these characters and and their 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 motivations and the mystery. Yeah, I enjoyed discussing it with you more than I enjoyed, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and, yeah. You know I what I mean? mean? And, yeah, and that's yeah. because um because I did. I gave it a five because the film is definitely not badly made. You know, it's it's not it's competently no, made. No. Yeah, oh yeah. Well acted. I thought the performances were very good. I like the cast. I think they all do do good. You know, and mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that I didn't have no problem with that. Um, we've seen again Javier Aguirre's some of his other work. I didn't think it it. Uh, I know the subject matter didn't necessarily lend it to it, but I didn't feel it was near the atmosphere of Count Dracula's Great Love. You know, and uh, yeah, but I was. I, I think that maybe I could have used. Maybe it's a little too stark and pastoral for to to make the build up to the first murder. I didn't mind. I could have dealt with the build up to the first kind of real action being an hour if that hour had kind of been filled. I think with maybe a little more tension, a little more style. You know, maybe a, um, I think that maybe even just a little more interesting dialogue. It's not that the dialogue's bad. It's just I realize that there's so much exposition. You get so many scenes of characters walking and talking and exposition and right and uh, so. I guess I would say, like, it just didn't really connect with me too much, the film. It left me a little, okay. like I said, not badly made at all, not a bad film. Um, and there are some things I like, and there's certain scenes, there's certain things directorially that he does do that I like. Like I mentioned earlier, the way that he sets up the scenes with Bertha and Francis to convey things visually. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, on the whole, though, maybe uh, I just I just maybe just needed something, a l- maybe just a little more tension-filled, a little more to keep me going to before we finally start getting to... You know, the real issues. Now, admittedly, I did leave the film. Like I said, I want to talk to you about the ending because the film did leave me with some interesting questions. And that's always, I mean, I've been, you know, it left it did definitely leave me thinking about some stuff, you know, and that's always kind of a nice thing. You know, I, did, I don't mind that it didn't dot every I or cross every T. I don't think it answers every question about the characters. Um, I sort of wrestle sometimes with, like, was there points where the script was was clumsy in that respect, you know, that it kind of wrote, like I said, I felt at times maybe it wrote itself into a corner, but I also thought like, well, at the same time, you know, maybe there's just things that they want you to think about and maybe they didn't really feel like they had to answer all these questions or leave you with some other mysteries, you know, to go on with it. So, yeah, yeah. but like I said, yeah, I, I, it's, it's again, I don't, I don't, I doubt that I would ever watch the film again unless they either found a, a, a print with extra stuff, you know, like just to see if there was like a, uncensored print, you know, or obviously if the film ever comes out on like a better, like a Blu-ray or something, obviously I'd watch it again because I could, you know, I, I found it interesting enough that it was, it would, it would not kill me to watch it again, but as my own personal choice, I probably won't. So that's why I kind of have to give it a five there. Understandable. So, yeah, Understandable. Yeah. Well, before we, oh before yeah, you said that, that you said Nashie had some things to yeah. say about it. Uh, I, I refer back to the, uh, the wonderful videos mm-hmm. co- uh, conversation where he covered pretty much every one of his films and what he had to say about this movie was uh, short, sharp, and to the point. He says, This was a simple collaboration when Avier Aguirre was already completely lo- had already completely lost the inspiration and he made a monotonous movie without the least bit of interest. There's little more I can say about this film since I had no interest in working in it and I did it simply to earn money. Mm-hmm. Let me repeat that. A monotonous movie without the least bit of interest. I have to disagree. Now that's a with little. That. Even I would say that that's <laughs> that's a little harsh. <laughs> and that's a little. That is a little tough there. You know, little little tough there. But considering his uh, his connection to it and how much, I mean, seriously, how little if, he must if, have even seen yeah. of the of yeah. the filming. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I honestly doubt he was there for longer than a day. No, I can't so, imagine. Yeah. Yeah, I, I in that respect, okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, the, the, don't, don't agree with Mr. Nash on that one, but hey, there you go. It's all right. Uh, but one other thing I wanted to point out is that one of the actors in the film, the actor who plays uh, Harry Steven, mm-hmm. who gets the hatchet to the face, right. his name is uh, Simon Andrew, 
he, uh, just a few years ago, uh, when was it? Uh, actually, just last year. Holy crap. Uh, he was given the Nosferatu Award at the Sidges Film Festival. Wow, the, that's uh, like the International really Film Festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, now, uh, he started over 150 films produced in different company, countries. He received a well-deserved acknowledgement and tribute to his extensive career. Um, th- this just cool. quickly lists off his film- filmography. It includes films like Voyage to Nowhere. Uh, let's see. Uh, the Priest, directed by uh, Eloio de la uh, Iglesias. Uh, the Sea by uh, Villaronga. The Blood-Spattered Bride. Death yeah, and that was where I had seen him for because I knew yeah. he was another one I looked at. I was like, I've seen this guy before, and, and of those films, I know that, you know, I have definitely seen The Blood's Battered Bride, so that's uh-huh. that's where I'd seen him. Well, he, uh, I've definitely seen him in uh, Death Walks on High Heels, which is uh, the Luciano Ercoli film. Um, he was also, believe it or not, uh, he was in Beyond Reanimator by Brian Usna. Oh, wow. And uh, he was also in Paul Verhoeven's Flesh and Blood. Oh, I love that film. I haven't uh, seen it in years. I need to get that Blu-ray that's about to come out. Uh, he worked to... with uh, Milos Forman in hmm. uh, Goya's Ghosts. Uh, he was in uh, Bridget Jones, The Edge of Reason. He was in the Bond film, Die Another Day. Uh, and so last year, uh, S- uh, Simon or Simone... Simone Andreo or uh, Andrew, Andrew or Andrew, something. Yeah, something like that. Uh, ...was given the uh, Nosferatu Award at the Sitges Film Festival. Cool. Well, and uh, I think that's pretty neat. That's too. pretty cool. That is pretty cool. So he's not just a Skid Row Don Juan anymore. Exactly. <laughs> not just a Skid Row Don Juan. That damn dude's he's an actor of note, That's people. Right. An actor yeah. of note. So, all right, folks. What we're going to do now is uh, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll dive into the mailbag and see what you guys have to say to us. White Zombie, a new novelization of the classic horror movie from award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan. Available now in print and all ebook formats. Find it on Amazon, Smashwords, Drive Through Fiction, and other quality outlets. Also available in a special edition, including the complete movie script. Grab White Zombie before it grabs you. Details at sdsullivan.com. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. The management of this drive-in theater is happy to announce you can enjoy your favorite form of movie entertainment regardless of rain. No longer will it be necessary to let rain spoil your fun. Now you can keep your windshield clear and dry with a drizzle guard. Simply attach it to your windshield, and in a jiffy, you're enjoying the movie without constantly running your windshield wipers. A drizzle guard will save you gasoline and wear and tear on your battery. After the show is over, all you do is take off your drizzle guard, roll it up, and it's ready to be used again, just like an umbrella. So next time it rains, don't sizzle in a drizzle. Get yourself a drizzle guard and enjoy the show. Drizzle guards are on sale now at the concession center. Well, all right, we are dipping into the mailbag, and we've had some great correspondences yet again, and we appreciate you folks, for, as always, for writing in to us. And, yes, thank you very much. Um, this is from Shiksa again, uh, and uh, I think we did, uh, yeah, we did something of hers, I believe, in last month. Uh, yeah, she wrote and, in last month. Yeah, she says, hey, Rod and Troy, thanks so much for including my email in last month's mailbag. Well, thank you so much for writing. Yeah, I was about to say, no need to thank us for reading out your email. We're just glad you sent it. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, we are attention starved. And I said, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so she writes, since Rod briefly touched upon our mutual admiration for classic hard, or excuse me, classic Doctor Who, 
I wanted to heartily recommend the two previously missing stories, Enemy of the World and The Web of Fear, both found in a television station relay closet in Nigeria yeah, yeah, yeah. after 40 years and restored in 2013. Trailers for both stories are up on YouTube if anyone is interested. As most of your listeners may or may not know, the early years of the program's history were completely wiped, and this is a painful thing to read, uh, but we all knew this, were completely wiped by the BBC in a a cost-cutting measure, a decision that all of us fans are still suffering from to this day. There's an extensive, detailed account of the BBC's junking of the program and recovery efforts in a book by Richard Molesworth called Wiped, Doctor Who's Missing Episodes. In Enemy of the World, Patrick Troughton carries six whole episodes on his back playing both the Doctor and Salamander, the charismatic, scheming world dictator-in-waiting, and is absolutely brilliant. Web of Fear is a great story that features one of my favorite early Doctor Who monsters, the Yeti. Unfortunately, the first story featuring the Yeti, called The Abominable Snowman, only has two, only has episode two in the BBC archives thus far. Naturally, that one existing episode is awesome and leaves you wanting more. Since discovering Enemy and Webb, I've fallen helplessly in love with Patrick Troughton's portrayal of the Doctor and sought out more of his filmography, including oh. his appearances in Ray Harryhausen's Jason and the Argonauts, and several Hammer films, including The Gorgon, Scars of Dracula, and The Viking Queen, Yep. the latter being a mess of a sword and sandal film, but in which Troughton is a devastatingly sexy Breton warrior. <laughs> so David Tennant does absolutely nothing for me, but I would happily follow Patrick Troughton into the TARDIS any and every day of the week, it must be said. <laughs> well, I am a huge cool. Patrick Troughton fan myself. I've gotten mm-hmm. my hands on Web of Fear, but I actually haven't watched it yet, which is mm-hmm. uh, a sad fact of the matter that I just have too damn many things just on my plate. Just not enough hours in the day, believe me. Definitely know, not enough hours in the day, and uh, everything pulling me in a million different directions. I'm a hu- Patrick Troughton is actually my favorite of the Doctors. He has been for mm-hmm. a number of years. I yeah, love him. I've yet to get to see, get to see any of his uh, stuff. I've, I'm, I'm still very slow. I mean, I'm trying to work my way, you know, see some of each Doctor from Doctor uh-huh. Who, but I'm still wanting to watch a few more of the uh, of uh, the Tom Baker stuff before I move on to somebody else, but I definitely intend to watch some Patrick Troughton stuff. Well, the, the, the first two Doctors, uh, Hartnell and Troughton, do have the uh, the kind of uh, one foot in the gutter part. Uh, well, mm. it's, 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 it's almost a... Uh, they, they start off with a couple of strikes in a lot of people's eyes because their years were in black and white. So there are a lot of people who are <laughs> automatically wondering. yeah they're automatically turned off to the fact that they're yeah. in black and white. They didn't go to color until the third Doctor. Yeah. So yeah, that's there's that. But yeah, I've uh, I've got one of those reco- those newly recovered stories. I just haven't watched it yet. So I'm excited to eventually do so. Yeah, I can just about forgive the Brits. Just about everything they've done in their colorful history, except for the burning uh, of their episode. The uh, I mean, the, you know, there's all those Peter Cushing Sherlock Holmes Sherlock episodes Holmes, yeah. that have been just uh, it's like a, a stake through the heart every time you think. Well, about yeah, it. the the vast majority, like like the uh, the original episodes of the first Quatermass serial oh, done yeah. for television and things yeah. like that are gone. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, she finishes up with saying, "Finally, I want to give my compliments to Rod's Bloody Pit podcast for the overview of the Tarzan films with Johnny Weissmuller." Hopefully this will inspire Rod to do a similar podcast, only this time with an overview of the Sherlock Holmes films from Universal starring Basil Rathbone. Interesting idea. That is an interesting idea. She not, says, my, yeah. not my favorite run of Sherlock well, Holmes, I mean, but I do have yeah. a lot of respect for it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It said, I enjoyed the BBC's Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch until season three left me disillusioned. So I returned to the Rathbone films for a good Holmes fix and found most of them hold up pretty well, the Scarlet Claw being my favorite of the bunch. And despite Nigel, Nigel Bruce's dim-witted, non-literary Watson, they're still very entertaining and very fun. You can't beat the world's greatest consulting detective versus Hitler's Nazi spies. Yeah. Now, Shiksa, I, I, I would surely thank you for a Sherlock Holmes fan. You've surely seen the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes, Ryan. If you haven't, you've got to waste no time in getting out yes. in the, because you must watch those. They are the 
most awesome homes things that have ever been done. However, I do agree that the Rathbone films are fun, and it is oh, kind of neat the way they took the Sherlock Holmes character and, and, and wrote new stories based, you know, updated and wrote new stories mm-hmm. using that character rather than basing everything on, you know, on, on the, the original uh, run of stories. You know, I think they might have adopted a couple of them, but I think the majority of them are new mysteries, aren't they, that I think are... The uh, the Rathbone story? Yeah, I was thinking that the majority they, of those were... Only were, a couple of them. I think maybe three of them are are adaptations. And the rest are pretty much new mysteries using the sort characters. Of, sort yeah, of, yeah. And, and even the They may have still of, used it. Yeah, they, they kind of used a couple of ideas here and there, but they... They they did you know first of all they're shifting the the time period from the late eighteen hundreds you know the the eighteen the eighteen eighties eighteen nineties early nineteen hundreds mm-hmm. all the way up into you know the the nineteen forties and the right. Second World War so they're they're having to change around a lot of things to begin with but I mean there's not a lot a whole, there's not a whole lot that survives from the quote unquote story being adapted right, the right, few times sure. you're quote unquote adapting a story yeah, yeah. Uh, but I do enjoy the the Basil Rathbone films here's the thing is that I honestly have enjoyed. Uh, Pretty much, most I would say almost eighty percent of the Sherlock Holmes adaptations yeah. I've seen over the course of my entire life. Yeah, me too. Very few of them are, are are things that have left me cold, and I thoroughly enjoyed the third season of uh, of Sherlock. I'm not sure what people are complaining about in that third season. I I think that there have been a couple of dud episodes. I think the Hound of Baskerville from the second season was kind of weak, and I think the second episode in the first season was kind of weak, mm-hmm. but. Uh, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed the run of Sherlock very effectively. I think it's a wonderful take on the character, but then I've enjoyed, like I say, most of the Sherlock Holmes I've seen. I I yeah. like seeing different interpretations of the characters. Yeah, yeah. But the idea of covering all those Sherlock Holmes films it is uh it is tasty. It's not like I don't have them all. I certainly do. I have mm-hmm. those wonderful reissues that came out a few, several years back when mm-hmm. they got uh, they got cleaned mm-hmm. up when Hugh Hefner kicked in a bunch of money and helped uh, help them get restored. Mm-hmm. So that's an idea, I have to admit. I hate having that idea stuck in my head now, but <laughs> because yeah, now yeah. we'll sit there and fester until I <laughs> extrude a podcast. Yeah, yeah, cool. So she finished up saying, really looking forward to the next Nashy cast and Bloody Pit of Rod. Talk to you next month, Shiksen. Thank you very much for Thank writing in as always. Much. Yes, yes, yes. All right, well, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, next out of the bag. We have oh this is a new this is a new writer I don't think we've ever heard from Blaze yeah we're gonna pronounce it Blaze because it's spelled the same way Modesty Blaze is so we're hoping that's the right pronunciation there we're gonna... we we can we can only hope yes so what we have here is uh, Rod and Troy I only discovered your podcast over the last week or so and I am duly impressed you guys are a class fucking act wow class is not a word that is normally applied to us no that's... no no we would we in the parlance of this particular film we would be skid row i was gonna say we'd be waitresses but uh, <laughs> we would be waitresses <laughs> even better yeah. even better skid yes. row waitresses skid row podcast skid row yeah. waitresses yes. uh he says uh i've only seen a few nashy films really and only one of them is a werewolf movie but I love the ones I've seen, especially Hunchback of the Morgue, Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll, Horror Rises from the Tomb, and Vengeance of the Zombies. That's a, that's a, that's good, a good quartet. That's a good quartet, yeah, very much so. Only seen a, uh, also seen a lot of what's covered in the Point Five and other Beyond Nashy episodes and was thrilled beyond belief as I poured over your archives on iTunes and discovered that you did Cutthroats 9. This has been one of my favorite movies for a very long time. It haunts me. I can, right at this moment, with no aid whatsoever, conjure pretty much any piece of the musical score and listen to it in my brain. There is really no film quite like Cutthroat's Nine, and knowing that a detailed, knowledgeable, respectful, loving, Nashy cast treatment 
would be applied to it got me quite excited. I was not disappointed. You actually made me question my own assessment of the film, some of which I wrote out here on my blog a few weeks ago. Uh, and he gives us a link, Cutthroat's Nine, Personally Haunting. There was a period of time when I devoured all of the obscure spaghetti westerns I could get my hands on, so I thoroughly enjoyed your tangential intro re-spaghetti in general. In fact, I made, it made me go back over my VHS shelf to discover that I did indeed hold on to a lot of the obscure bootlegs I acquired. My last geographic move was sudden and abrupt and involved sending a number of 50 to 75 pound boxes of DVDs, VHS, and books in the mail and, the, and abandoning a bunch more, never to be seen again. It happens quickly, and I often for, it happened quickly, and I often forgot what I kept and what I didn't. Okay, I'm just going to pause to say that sounds horrific. I'm about to say my sympathies, buddy. That's uh, yeah, that's tough. I've had to do some fast moves too, and it's it's Oof, it's no. tough. Yeah, no, that's that. Oh man, my God. Okay, Whew. back to Blaze's email. Not sure if you're aware, but Cutthroat's Nine director Joaquin Louis Romero Merchant's brother Raphael directed several of the best spaghetti westerns out of the spaghetti boom, like Garingo, which is still hard to find, I think, Dead Men Don't Count, now a double feature DVD with Kill and Prey, and Revenge of the Resurrected. All, star, uh, all of them starred Anthony Steffen. Now, I'd have to say, I don't think I have seen... I haven't seen, I didn't, I haven't seen yeah, those I films. I have not either. Which makes me feel like Incomplete. I should not be talking yeah. about Spaghetti Westerns. No, <laughs> and you can name three right off the bat, and I don't know them. Uh, Kill and Prey I do know, but I don't know uh, the ones he's pointing out. Uh, he said, All starred Anthony Steffen. I think I've only seen two of Joaquin's other Westerns, which are harder to find than Raphael's. Uh, Implacable 3 and $100,000 for Lassiter, uh, a.k.a. dollars for a fast gun. Both were good. Now, I have what has turned out to be a really crappy print of $100,000 for Lassiter. It's so crappy I can't even watch it. The sound is completely screwed on it, so I'm hmm. in search oh, of a really? better print okay. of that. Yeah, I, I, I was really disappointed, unfortunately. Uh, he claims that both of them were good. There are distinct differences, I think, between the Spanish spaghetti westerns and the Italian ones. I agree with you, by the way. The Spanish tended to focus more on the traditional battle between chaos and order, even when the proponents of order were gritty and flawed, and the Italian ones tended to be either amoral and cynical or flat-out revolutionary. That's just my take. I also think that Spanish horror tends to have very distinct attributes and not, that are not found elsewhere. One of these is the seemingly unrelated portrayal in supernatural horror films of atrocious acts perpetrated by humans, usually criminals. This occurs in Horror Rises from the Tomb with the lynching, Tombs of the Blind Dead with the rape, Saga of the Draculas, attempted robbery resulting in a fatal fall down a stairwell, if I remember correctly, to cite just a few. I'm wondering if, now is it confusing that with Count Dracula's Great Love? No, cause, or maybe that's two films that both start, because I can't remember Saga of the Draculas. I haven't seen that yet. I've only seen it once, and it's been several years. Where no Count, so. you know, Count Dracula's Great Love starts with the guys breaking into Dracula's castle to rob, you know, and they get killed. The guy gets the hatchet to the head and falls down the... Stairs. They're not. They're not breaking in. They're taking the. Oh, they're, they're taking, taking the, the coffin. They're delivering there. the coffin. That's right. And they're yeah. they're looking around. Okay, so maybe that's. I was just. It may just be similar scenes. Yeah, but that's what made me think. Maybe it's been so long since I've seen Saga of the Draculas. I can't remember what he's talking about. But I'm going to take his word for it because sure. my God, he seems to have some serious insight here. Yep. Oh, definitely. Um. Let's see. He says. Uh, uh, the, 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 one way of looking at Cutthroat's Nine is that it had that it is this tiny segment of a Spanish horror film without the horror part. 
Although the DT scenes, as you pointed out, is sufficiently horrific. Yeah, the delirium yeah, tremens sequence mm-hmm. is awful. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, it's sufficiently horrific. Uh, he, said, he says it's, it's like a Spanish horror film without the horror part fleshed mm-hmm. out, deepened, and made into an entire film. Sorry, I just butchered your, your email there. <laughs> it feels nothing like a Western to me, really, and I love Westerns. Even, he says, I love Westerns. Silent Ones, Ken Maynard, Tim McCoy, Roy Rogers, Sam Peckinpah. There's very little I won't watch that is a Western. We just would have nothing to talk to. This <laughs> yeah, guy, but we just have nothing in common. With since since I actually have seen Ken Maynard and Tim McCoy and Roy Rogers films, and I worship the ground Sam Peckinpah directed on. So yeah. Yes. Uh, he says, "Was thrilled to find out that you seem to share this love of westerns after already discovering and being enamored of your podcast." Thank you again for covering one of my favorite films. Check out my blog if you get a chance. It's young and still finding its voice and feet. Take care and keep up the great work. Thank you, Blaze. Yes, and uh, read the name of his at the very bottom or maybe at the back of the, the page there. It has the name, oh, of the, name of, the name of the blog is Tales from the Wounded Church. Now, that in title itself would draw you to read the, the blog, but <laughs> I, I really want to recommend uh, Blaze's blog. I went after it and checked it out, and he's right. It is new enough that uh, there's only about five or six entries so far. Very, very well written uh, in, the, in the course of just what he's written so far. He's covered... Uh, an Anthony Mann Western. He's covered uh, a great write-up on uh, on Cutthroats Nine, uh, ZZ Top, and the Circle Jerks, all in one. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, and very well written. So yeah, Blaze, I, I, I definitely think people should. I definitely encourage people to read your blog. And uh, uh, you know, he brought up some. I, I don't know that we've ever talked about before, but you know, we always we we talk a lot about what makes European cinema, European horror films unique. Yeah. I think he pointed out something that I'm not sure if we ever brought up before is that kind of human brutality that. I mean, even even other horror films that had started to delve into more gore, nudity, more nastiness, uh, I think it, as still I think the Europeans were the first to to really blur that line between good and evil, and even like the human characters are sometimes like very very stained, very violent. Yeah, you know, there's just kind of that sort of hint of that there's a danger, there's a violent world even outside the supernatural. So, so yeah, I think that's a good point. And and that sometimes that nasty. That, that very nasty human world is worse than the supernatural aspect of things. And it's something that mm. it's as if you're caught between a mm. rock and a hard place, silly mm. ribs, whatever you want to call it. It's this horrible thing that you can't escape from. It's just the cruelty of the world, both natural mm. and supernatural. And that's, I think we've, we've touched on it before, but maybe mm. not quite mm. so mm. clarifying. Yeah. It's not quite so clear. So mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, we got one more, I think. Yes, we do. This is from Mark, a regular writer, Mark there. Thanks as always for, Always great to hear from him. He says, uh, Hello, fellas. Thanks for the latest installment. I watched Kilma on YouTube. It's certainly not a great copy, but it's watchable enough. Nash's character is fairly low-key in this one, but I found the film to be good fun. I, too, would probably rate it a six. Uh, handily, the sequel is also available on YouTube. I watched the first 30 minutes by accident, thinking it was the Nashy film. He said, <laughs> yeah, it looks like good fun, so I'll probably catch up with the rest of it soon. And you said you, yeah, you said it, it is it good, is good fun. Yeah. Okay. He says, agree with you about the soundtrack. There's some blistering tunes in there. It's a great shame that Spanish genre soundtracks from this period are so poorly archived. There's some great scores that didn't even make it onto vinyl, let alone CD, and it would appear that the master tapes for these classics are long gone. What I wouldn't give to own some Nashy soundtracks, and if a Blind Dead CD ever appeared there, I might just sew my pants with joy. <laughs> um, do you know of any, has the Blind Dead ever popped you know, up in I'm any, any releases? Sure. Uh, I don't know for sure if the Blind Dead, if a Blind Dead score has ever popped up. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, well, no, I mean, there's some DVD rips out there's there. There's some, like, yeah, there's, like, some, maybe some, some boots out there, but as far as, like, an official... Yeah, it just looks like it. all I can find, really, are listings for bootlegs, so I mm. guess not. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is a shame, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I know. He says, uh... He says, I listen with barely disguised envy to your chat about horror TV horror host. To my knowledge, it's not something we ever had here in England. In fact, until I saw Roddy McDowell's character in Fright Night, I wasn't even aware that such a thing existed. Until 1982, there were only three channels in the UK, so horror films were few and far between on the TV. I suppose our equivalent were the horror double bills that were shown at the weekends. These were generally a black and white film followed by a color film and are still fondly remembered by Brits of a certain age. He says, as I'm writing this, I'm eagerly awaiting the delivery of the second Video Nasties Guide DVD. Don't know if this was ever released in the U.S., perhaps not, as the whole Video Nasties fiasco was a uniquely British thing. But I can highly recommend the the first set. There's a feature-length documentary, which is both amusing and soul-destroying, plus trailers and mini-documentaries for each of the 72 films. Can't wait for the second installment. Looks like I'll be doing some overtime soon as as there are more and more interesting discs on the horizon. I'm particularly looking forward to the Blu-rays of Nightmare and Bloody Moon. Uh, he's probably talking about British release of Blu-rays. I don't know yes, if yes. you know. Um, he says, oh, and I'm sure another annoying know-it-all has told you this already, but Eva Miller's real name isn't Blanca Estrada. As you mentioned, Blanca Estrada is in Ghost Galleon, and she also turns up in Candle for the Devil. Still waiting on a Beyond Nashy for that film, by the way. Uh, I don't think I've seen Eva Miller in anything before, but she does share her name with the woman who runs the boarding house in Salem's Lot. Wow, that's an interesting uh, connection there. (laughs) He says, catch you next month, assuming you haven't roasted alive in the heat. Uh, Amazingly enough, we've had a little break. Our summer here in Nashville has not been as bad as they often are. Uh, July has been very mild. It's probably about to take a turn for the worse, but we've been very lucky so far that we at least made it through July without getting too many... We actually had one week there that felt like fall, which was incredible. Um, well, I want to address this Blanca yeah, yeah, Estrada yeah, go back thing, to this, which no. is, uh, he's right, there's somebody else who chimed in about this on a, on a different forum, and to be honest, I'm, I'm a little confused in that everything that I can find out about Blanca Estrada is that she is the actress who's in the Kilma movies, and that, I mean, I, there's, there's going to have to be a lot of information that's wrong about this in mm. a lot of different places, but... Blanca Estrada using the name Eva Miller mm-hmm. was apparently something that was going on. I mean, she was some kind of, uh, I mean, as far as I can tell, was uh, a circus performer early in her life. Um, did a few did a few movies in the seventies, and that was the end of it. But if it's not the same person, then there's a lot of places with bad information about Blanca Estrada. Hmm. So. And and you know, and it could just be one of those perpetrating kind of myths that maybe somebody somewhere got it confused and then it's just spiraled. And maybe maybe, so. maybe there's maybe another so. actress named Eva Miller who gets confused. You know that it confuses. I have no it's, idea. But very, it, yeah, 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 yeah. It's one of those one of those things that I'd love to I'd love to know that somebody out there with uh, mm. definitive information could nail this down because this mm. is now kind of. <laughs> one of those things bugging me a little. So, uh, Mark, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's interesting how we, you know, you have Brits and Americans have different things we envy each other for. Uh, but uh, you know, he he talks envying us for having horror hosts, and of course, we're often talking about how much we envy the fact that they had their they have their ghost stories for Christmas that they got to grow up on having you know those incredible True. M.R. James adaptations show on TV every you know every Christmas for you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, of course, we're always finding British DVD releases that we drool over, and you know, and most assuredly. Uh, and now, one thing we don't envy them for is the uh, we're, what we're very aware of. You know, uh, we're actually I can pretty much tell Mark most any horror fan here definitely knows what the term video nasty refers to. You know, we're very aware of how the Brits, you know, had to wait a long time to see a lot of movies, and that some of the films that got put on that list 
it was a very diff- it was very interesting some of the reasons you know uh, like very a lot strange, of films yeah. that ended up there and, and then the ones that didn't end up there you know so it was kind of arbitrary what really got banned and what didn't uh, and so in one case yeah it was it was nice and the, when the video boom hit the first VHS you know when the stores started to open up I'd say we were probably a little luckier here that I could go to you know the local video stores and, and, and find some really gory you know find a lot of, of uh, European horror movies and, and that I'm sure the, Brit, the Brits had to wait to get their hands yeah, it on was a, it, was a, it was a pretty rough period of time if you were a horror fan in the, in the 80s during the VHS boom because that was not easy to go through if you wanted to see those things it was yeah. not something you could do without a struggle yeah I would love to see this, these uh, documentaries oh, I know. that so would, would be I. great that's a, that sounds very cool uh and uh anyway his last tag he says p.s you finally did it you made a nightmare city podcast about time <laughs> it's on my way oh, it's on its way to my pie pod as we speak yes that was an epic podcast uh suiting an epic film let's say yeah we did uh it was you it was troy myself and our buddy jeff the guy who does the artwork for both podcasts frequently uh he uh he joined us for uh two solid hours of uh raucous discussion of uh umberto Lindsay's Nightmare City. If you haven't checked that out, it's uh, episode number sixteen of the Bloody Pit, the other the the other podcast we do out here occasionally. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we had a really good time. It was a joy to find two people who uh, love this kind of stuff, but who had somehow managed to not see yeah, that film. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, that is uh, that is how you do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. We'll have We've been to, getting a lot of good feedback on that Nightmare City yeah. podcast. A lot of people seem to have enjoyed that. We, I know, I sometimes you wonder if uh, the fact that you're having a good time, mm. whether that'll play well, whether people will be able to enjoy it as much as you enjoy doing it. Right. And uh, it does appear that people are getting a kick out of it. I don't, I don't know that we're ever going to be uh, riff tracks level uh, <laughs> comedy geniuses, but we do manage to uh, put a few smile on it. We rise to the material, you know. We, we rise to. <laughs> <laughs> Rise or lower lower ourselves, yeah, yeah. Uh, we were we repelled into the sewer on this one, so cool. Love Nightmare City, and yeah, it's been fun to hear people uh, give us some feedback on this. Um, mm-hmm. Buddy, my online buddy of mine named uh, Holger uh, wrote this wonderful piece, uh, thanking us for uh, thanking us for the podcast. As a matter of fact, maybe I ought to you know what I ought to do. Why not? Let's do. Let's delve into the bloody pit mailbag just as a as a. Well, it's... Because uh, I like to hear this myself, actually. <laughs> yeah, because I looked on your Facebook page and I was trying to see some of this feedback you is. talked about and I couldn't Yeah, actually, this was, a, this was a comment on the blog. You can find this on the, on the blog from where we posted the episode of The Bloody Pit. Uh, this is from Holger. He says, In my younger years, I was fascinated by the imagery on advertising material for Nightmare City. That film seems to have been around everywhere for a while, but I was, alas, too young to watch it then. I really thought this may be one of the scariest movies ever. It took me years to finally catch up with it, and when I did, man, was I disappointed. I felt this was an utter disaster and laughable when I thought it should be shocking, or would be shocking. The sheer enthusiasm of your podcast made me check the film out again. Plus, I have since become much more familiar with the joys of Eurotrash and, of course, was now properly prepared for what to expect. Mm -hmm. This time around, I really enjoyed the insanity of this production. It's very much a collection of independent gonzo set pieces that move at bullet pace. Yes, it's bananas, but it's also thoroughly entertaining. (laughs) You pretty much covered it all with the exception of one what-the-fuck moment where the general's daughter ignores her father's phone call and within seconds are being summoned in person by a member of the general staff to join him. Talk about being on standby. So, long story short, definitely a film I will from now on return to again and again. (laughs) 
<laughs> Thanks for another excellent podcast. No, no, he, well, yeah, that's exactly what this because the fact that that we didn't even catch that, you know, because yeah. there's so much other craziness Badness. going on. Well, like you, you know, you talked about the exploding television set. <laughs> yes. I didn't even have that in my notes. Like, I, that that wasn't even crazy enough for me to write down because there was so much other <laughs> insanity. <laughs> well, it's but, just you know when, yeah. when you have a television that's going to fling napalm onto the zombie, <laughs> yeah. you've got a pretty damn cool television. Yeah. That's what you got. <laughs> Yeah, but no, he's, it, it, it is a rather scary thought that we're inspiring people to watch this film over and over, you know, in terms of so we may be single-handedly responsible for, for, uh, for elevating this, you know. A Nightmare City the Renaissance. The future credit criterion Nightmare City disc that's coming out is going to be bl- us to blame, <laughs> us to blame for it. <laughs> oh, my cool. Lord, you are frightening me. I don't, even, I don't even know if that's a good idea to, I mean, it would be funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, folks, thank you very much for listening to us. Yes. I guess we'll sign off. We need to tell you that next month we are going to cover... Well, it looks like we've decided to cover a film that Nashi definitely had a hand in but did not star in. As a matter of fact, uh, was kind of booted from the production of. Mm-hmm. And from that is a story we shall have to get into. We'll have yes. to tell you about that. Next month, we're going to cover what we're going to call a Beyond Nashi episode. Uh, it is the film The Cross of the Devil, mm-hmm. or The Devil's Cross, depending on how you translate the title. Mm-hmm. It's a film directed by John Gilling, who uh, was responsible for a few pretty impressive hammer yeah, films in the 60s very good hammer uh, it was a contentious production uh, and produced a film that the last time i watched it which was several years ago i found pretty impressive and i've not seen it so i'm looking forward to watching it so next month a beyond nashy episode with some severe nashy connections i would say the devil's cross or the cross of the devil from 1975 so if you're playing along at home it's not that easy to find. Attune the atem- antenna and see what you can locate. Mm, get up on the roof, adjust it, and see what comes in. So. <laughs> yes, the rabbit ears are going to have to be employed. So, folks, thank you very much. Remember, you can get in touch with us at nashicast at gmail.com. Please drop us a line if you have something to say. And uh, we love to hear from you. Yeah, and like our Facebook page. Visit us there. Post things on there often and, and keep in contact with us that way. Yes, please, please, please. So, folks, thank you once again for listening, and uh, I guess we will talk to you next time around. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And keep it between the lines, folks. Decided to pass through this free